Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Stacks. This is Jay. And I'm Shanat. I don't know anything. I don't know my neighbors. <laughs> I haven't seen any movies. I don't remember any words to any songs. <laughs> I can't answer your questions. I want to help you, but I can't. I will never remember that the song is called Paper Planes. <laughs> And therefore, I don't exist. <laughs> uh, yeah, a real interesting movie, our second one. Uh, but first, we're talking about Picasso Trigger. Uh, fifth, fourth, fifth, fourth, fifth-ish. Third to fourth in the... I mean, it's it's. I, I guess it's technically the third in the Malibu Bay series, of films by director Andy Sedaris. This one's from 1988, uh, but it's the fourth one we've covered because we did seven, which this is kind of a remake of. And even features at least one recurring character from seven. Yeah, the professor. He's just back as the professor. <laughs> he, he's Q in this. Oh, he's completely Q. It's awesome. I can't remember if he's in more of these, but I totally love him. I, I kind of hope he is. I think, because uh, I have, I just got finished listening to the Andy Sedaris commentary on this film. I think they mentioned that either he comes back or at least the gadgets come back. I'm looking at his IMDb and it looks like he is sadly not in any of the subsequent ones. He actually must have retired very shortly after this. He's only in... Uh, Two episodes of TV, a TV movie, and some movie called Instant Karma uh, in the couple years after this. And then he didn't ever act again. He became an acting coach. Oh, cool. Cool. Hmm. Uh, Shame that we don't get to see more of him, though. It is. I really love The Professor. I was pretty jazzed to see him back. He's kind of showing up as a surrogate for Andy Sedaris himself in the film, even though Andy Sedaris is himself in the film, of course. <laughs> yeah, the sportscasters come back. Yeah, that's... and he's he's reprising his character too. He's Whitey again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Our good friends Taryn and Donna come back from the previous one. Of course. Uh, and they are back in the next one as well, but I think the next one is maybe the last one with both of them. Like Donna's oh. in a few more of these, but I think it's the last one with Taryn. I, I like Taryn. She's my favorite. Yeah, she's really funny. She's sort of the main character in Weird Sort of like she's the one who gets away with the loot at the end. Mm-hmm. She's all of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's always some kind of like weird loophole. It, it just reminds me of those Facebook posts from 2016 where it's like, yeah, yeah, but because of this loophole, Bernie Sanders actually gets to be the president now. Or you know, when people post, you know, Facebook does not have the right to uh, keep my photos <laughs> and stuff. And like, yeah, no, I, I've shown the system that <laughs> you don't but understand Taren, how things work. Yeah, for her, it works. She just knows how to exploit the loopholes. And yeah. they, it works because she's the only civilian in the group. Everybody else is a secret agent. There's so many of them. Can we really count her as a... Like, she is actively participating in the mission at this one. She's completely a secret agent at this point. They like yeah. they both work for the organization. Oh, yeah. In the next one, I think they're technically agents of L-E-T-H-A-L. 
lethal. <laughs> they're the lethal ladies. <laughs> yeah, they they don't even have a name in this. It's just the agency. Yeah, they're completely just the agency. And I think they sort of existed in Hard Ticket because most of these people are recurring from Hard Ticket, but Malibu yeah, Express they... definitely didn't have any of this stuff. <laughs> no, yeah, no, the agency was in Hard Ticket. Um, right. Because Jade and Edie, who come back, were agents of that too. Right. But Rowdy's gone. Rowdy is gone. Sadly, we have uh, a discount Abilene. It does seem like every time we get a new Abilene, it is a degradation. It's like, um, what is it, Michael Keaton in that movie where there's all the clones and the fourth one is just <laughs> can't? Uh, multiplicity. Multiplicity, yeah. yeah. yeah or, or, paper, or Paper Jam Dipper from the Gravity Falls episode. Yeah, I sort of feel like we're not that far off the paper jam Abilene because I'm not a fan <laughs> <the next> of <laughs> Travis Abilene does not do it for me. <laughs> Travis Abilene is like, <laughs> he's like a caveman. He's he's really lame. Uh, just a huge, huge step down because, I mean, I, I was not a giant fan of Rowdy. Rowdy was okay. Rowdy was sort nice. of a discount Cody. I don't remember anything about Rowdy, honestly. Yeah. I remember Cody. Yeah, Rowdy was sort of okay. You know, Rowdy is just, he was doing the Cody thing, but not quite as charmingly. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, <laughs> Travis <laughs> is doing the Rowdy thing with like anti-charm. <laughs> like he's doing it and he's just kind of like, I don't like this guy. He's got sort of like... I, I maybe it's his soap opera style like he's got a really <laughs> active face and he just seems too brooding to be the character that he is oh yeah yeah it's not that he yeah it's not that he doesn't emote he emotes maybe too much yeah he mega emotes he's just so ultra brooding all the time he would have fit in in like uh 90s stuff like the crow that's the sort of place you want this guy not in a sunny adventure film as the <laughs> silly secret agent who can't shoot yeah yeah he, he's like he looks he looks like he should be in like a bargain basement original rambo movie not not yeah. this yeah and i mean he is mainly a soap opera guy uh he did 96 episodes of general hospital oh jesus okay so he's he's just that that's his genre much more like he did start out in the exploitation biz he's in stuff like gas pump girls and massacre at central high (laughs) uh which i think i have both of those uh lurking somewhere in the stacks uh but yeah he went into soap operas and that's sort of more his gig and i definitely think that fits him better than this specifically (laughs) Yeah, like like he could, or in the nineties, he could give a great. They killed my wife. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's something he could manage. But no, no, these are fun movies. Nobody is sad when people die in these. Right. It's it's just not that sort of thing. So uh, our first, our main guy, our title character, who uh, is more important to it than it seems at the start. Yeah, it's kind of like why name it's he's kind of a fake out character because you yeah. think he's going to be important 
and then he gets killed instantly it's actually really funny <laughs> <laughs> literally two seconds after we learned that he's the title <laughs> character and the picasso trigger isn't some kind of super weapon yeah so picasso well a couple things so picasso trigger is his secret agent name with i guess he's with the agency technically he is? And, yeah. although he's obviously a super criminal too but i don't know if we know at the well we sort of know at the start he's a super criminal because isn't pantera talking to him about that at his yeah, art gallery thing yeah about how it's like what are you going to do with all this freedom you have oh it's right. a new beginning <laughs> that's well, yeah that's what makes it so funny she's i i think i have the line here you sound like a man who's nearing he's at his end he's like no nearing a new beginning he goes outside and he's immediately shot dead <laughs> but of course the line does end up working because it is a new beginning he's going to be reborn with a new name mm-hmm. so uh yeah but we're that, that's slightly ahead so he is uh, first just paris landmarks a house that could be absolutely anywhere and is not necessarily in paris at all <laughs> yeah i i don't <laughs> think they went to paris they did go to paris and did some pickup shots i think oh you know what i'm sorry you're right uh the museum shot where he gets assassinated yeah that is, is... in paris yep and the the manager of the museum actually was like okay you could use this but you have to clean it up afterwards it has to be spotless when you're done and then he sees the assassin thing happen on the news <laughs> cool. blood all over the pillar oh awesome uh oh so, so yeah uh that that is helpful you did get a chance to listen to the the commentary track i didn't yeah get. uh good commentary track i imagine uh sideris does usually provide a lot of interesting background Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that's how i know that scenes that all take place in one location are actually shot at like five or six. Oh yeah i bet this one's on a stage this one's actually in an airplane here we were there here we were just at my house yeah i mean some of them definitely look like this seems like the sedaris house because you see a lot of it in the special features you you get the <laughs> uh the introduction with him and julie strain with her breasts out and she's like i was <laughs> when i was seeing these movies i was too young to be in them but i was ready for it <laughs> <laughs> oh um every single female character in this film you will see their breasts Oh yeah, I mean that's almost the point. <laughs> he he mainly casts from Playboy. The, I, we we were talking about this the other night, and I was trying to look up uh, some of the characters, and I had Wikipedia open, and uh, I was like, "Oh hey, there's a link for uh, Donna Spear and for Hope Marie Carlton. I can probably find out from their pages uh, which movies of the series they're in." Uh, because we're trying to remember which ones they're in it's like oh it just links to a page of people who have appeared in playboy who are centerfolds <laughs> they, they were both centerfolds like a couple months apart like oh i see <laughs> yeah uh one thing yeah actually that was one thing i wanted to point out was he 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 does really good casting but that's because he's only gonna cast actors for the acting roles if he needs the character to do something else like one of the main henchmen he cast a motorcycle champion for that yeah so he can uh, do motorcycle stuff <laughs> yeah yeah uh one of the good guys is a former mr universe uh the huge black dude oh yeah 
uh, I mean, obviously too, yeah. that guy, he is like, he, he looks like he's still Mr. Universe in the movie. Oh yeah. In this. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jade and the guy he fights are actual martial artists. You of course. Tell Jade's oh, no yeah. actor. Yeah. Harold <laughs> Diamond. He is a non-actor. Uh, and he's, he's fun, in, though. oh yeah. And he's in all of these too. He's he, Jade is a recurring character in a bunch of these. Uh, and well, it's it's also like in uh, Hard Ticket to Hawaii, as you, how we have the guy who does the skateboard tricks with oh, the, yeah. the blow up dolls. Like, well, because he knew a guy who could do skateboard tricks because he was the wild world, of, uh, the wild war world of sports dude. <laughs> Man, I wish skateboard guy could have come back somehow. I know, but we have had him twice, so yeah, he's kind of really exhausted the one trick he does, but it's so much yeah. fun every time. <laughs> So we we establish Paris, which is where our secret agent Picasso Trigger, uh, aka Salazar. Although I don't know if he's aka Salazar yet. Is he? Uh, I think Salazar is his real name. Okay, it just is his real name. Yeah. Uh, and he is at home, and he receives this package from Miguel Ortiz, who is the brother of Luca. Uh, the big bad in Hard Ticket to Hawaii, who I think he got blown through a wall. He, I don't think he was the guy who went out the window, although we redo the go out the window thing <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> we, we redo it in the most redone way that you could do it without recycling the footage, which he doesn't do. <laughs> it is exactly the same, but they reshot it because, you know, Andy Sedaris is a pro. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, and he... In the commentary, oh, he has things to say about CGI. Oh, I bet he does. I, I really <laughs> appreciate his dedication to the craft. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's like, yeah, in any other movie, this explosion would have been CGI, but not mine. Oh, heck no. He does a lot of explosions. This one's the most explosion heavy since Seven, because we are going back to the professor with everything exploding. It's great. <laughs> really into it. Oh, so many explosions. No exploding <laughs> snakes, though. No, no snakes at all. Not this time. No uh, <laughs> cancer snakes. Oh, <laughs> right. From <laughs> eating cancer-infected cancer. rats. Uh, which I think oh. was the professor, wasn't it? But it was, he was playing a different character in that one? You know what? Yes, it is. He was is. like the warehouse manager. Right. Uh, but he's not the warehouse manager in this. He's back to being no, the professor. And he has his own mansion and yeah. a Swedish babe. <laughs> Who calls him Professor, comma, the. Yeah. Professor I've decided the. that's his real name. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we also see uh, our Picasso trigger. He has this L-shaped scar, which is very distinctive. So we, we... <laughs> All I can think of is he's looking kind of dumb with his finger in his thumb and in the shape <laughs> of an l on his chest uh oh but yeah so it, it's a pacemaker scar it is a pacemaker scar uh, so i i meant to say uh john apria is the guy who plays picasso trigger he's probably the biggest actor in this uh he is uh young tessio in godfather part two Oh, he apparently grows up to be abe vigoda i don't see it <laughs> i don't see it either <laughs> um but he's in all sorts of stuff. He's in Bullet, the classic Steve McQueen one. He is Grandpa Nick on Full House. Oh. 
Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, Nick Katsopoulos. So I think he's uh, he'd he'd be uh, the dad of Uncle Jesse, I guess. Yeah, Uncle Jesse's dad, I suppose. Maybe. Yeah, makes sense. I I could see that. I could see that much more than him becoming Abe Vigoda. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, so yeah, he gets the the package from Miguel, who's saying in 24 hours, revenge killings are going to be uh, just waves of revenge killings for the death of uh, Miguel Ortiz or of of Luca are going to be happening. The guy who plays Miguel is apparently going to be in the going to be the villain in six more of these. Yeah, Rodrigo Obregon. Uh, it's like his main thing. <laughs> He is in the next one. Uh, oh, he is prolific. He's also a big TV guy. Uh, he is in 166 episodes of a TV series called Carolina Barantes. Oh, good for him. I, I love Carolina Barantes. <laughs> I guess so. Uh, yeah. But yeah, he is in Lethal Ladies Return to Savage Beach, which is the last nice. one. Day of the Warrior, Dallas Connection. Oh, he's in L.A. Wars as Raul Guzman, so I think he's the main baddie in that. Oh, right, L.A. Wars. L.A. Wars is one we should watch. Uh, Enemy Gold, Fit to Kill, Hard Hunted, Savage Beach. Yeah, I think he is the bad guy in all of these before <laughs> the rest of the series. Killed. I presume so, yeah. Oh, yeah, and Guns. Guns is one of them, too. Oh, nice. Uh, and there's a movie called Top Line from 1988 that I've got coming soon from Cauldron that he's in, too. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> he seems to just be an exploitation villain guy. That's all he does. He has that sort of face. He, yeah, he pulls it off. Yeah, and he knows it. He, he's just, he knows how to use it. Mm-hmm. So our... Uh, 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 Ortiz, he's uh, given his plan. He thanks Picasso Trigger for his assistance because he did some sort, or he's going to do an assassination in Texas that hasn't been carried out quite yet. But he's like, yeah, I felt I needed to do this one personally. Mm -hmm. So we get our first phase of the movie, and this is just a phase of or, or no, first, I, I guess we're not quite there yet because there is him going to the uh, <laughs> the museum and giving away the painting, which is of a Picasso trigger, which is a type of fish. Yeah, so I, I was a little confused at first because I was like, this painting doesn't look like a Picasso, and <laughs> I didn't understand. Uh, but yeah, the fish itself is a Picasso trigger, so he's named after this fish, and he has his whole speech about how it's beautiful in the way it defends itself and i don't know <laughs> yeah it like rips out the underbelly of whatever's attacking it or right he, he gives a speech again at the end too yeah to protect all that is beautiful with every force <laughs> uh and oh, oh yeah i forgot to mention on the way to the museum we see him being tailed by a motorcycle with sidecar and the dude in the sidecar has a freaky nazi medallion on yeah but he's also the guy who handed picasso trigger the tape right so it's it's so is he working for picasso trigger or isn't he what's his deal yes and no <laughs> <laughs> yes and no 
Uh, so he is uh, donating this painting to uh, the big Paris museum. And uh, it's, it's a, I think it's by Guillermo Esteban. I don't know if it's actually a real painting. I don't think it so. It is not it. They had it made for $200. Yeah. It doesn't look like uh, a, a, a something that would be a famous painting. It looks like a painting that you would have in your hotel room. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, it, it definitely feels like uh Hawaii tourist decor more than anything else. I feel like I would find it at Value Village somewhere. Oh, for sure. You know, that's its final resting place. <laughs> yes. But I mean, he is donating it, but he really respects it for whatever reason. He gives this whole speech because he really respects the fish, uh, which gave him his spy name. It's very ostentatious altogether. As yeah. Pantera comes and tells him, it's like, you realize this is really ostentatious and absurd. You seem like you're self-destructing here. <laughs> yeah. So Pantera is uh, supposedly has been undercover to infiltrate him for some time for some reason uh, yeah makes sense it we do not get any kind of impression that she is in any way uh, <laughs> uh undercover or is like uh working against him in any sort of way yeah no she's just <laughs> so the spying in this movie uh isn't good Oh, yeah, no, everybody is doing spying like sports. They're a sports team and, you know, they they have fans of their spying. They have rivals of their spying. <laughs> oh, my God. It's like the WWF yeah. of spying and action. Yeah, it's it's a real wild world of sports spy, spy universe. Uh, Pantera, played by Roberta Vasquez, she also will be back in most of the rest of the series as a different character because yeah she'd have to be a different character (laughs) she she needs to be uh so she plays nicole justin in most of the rest of these okay guns do or die hard hunted and fit to kill she is nicole justin they're great hard hunted (laughs) do or die (laughs) is the one where uh pat marita joins the the crew as oh shit i think pat marita i think he's playing a character who has been a white guy in previous entries. I think he might be playing another. There's this one guy who just keeps being recast as completely different people. That's funny. Yeah. I have seen up to at least do or die, but I'm not sure if I've seen much past that. Okay. So, uh, yeah, he gives his whole dumb protect all that's beautiful speech and Pantera comes and talks to him and, we have that your code name is picasso drinker and you're a special agent (laughs) i sure am that's right uh uh, and uh the new beginning thing he goes outside and the sidecar guy shoots him (laughs) yeah instantly like yeah it's it's punchy it's pretty funny (laughs) Mm -hmm. i definitely laughed because it's like right after no, nearing a new beginning is like, oh man, he is instantly going to be killed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought he was going to be like, I don't know. I thought he was going to be our main character. Uh, I mean, he, and, he is the title character. Yeah. And, and like he was, I, I thought maybe he was about to go deep undercover, but no, nope. <laughs> it was <Well>, literally <laughs> sort of. I, I, 
I literally message you like, oh, the Picasso trigger is a guy. Oh, no, Picasso trigger, like two seconds. <laughs> oh, no, Picasso trigger. And then we have a lot of oh, no's because we enter that phase of the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The uh, the bad guys are actually intimidating phase. Yeah. So first we go to LG, who is more specifically, I, I, I had not caught this before. He's Uncle Long Gone. LG yeah. stands for Long Gone. He, yeah, he's the Abilene's <laughs> uncle. He's long gone Abilene. And uh, surprisingly, he's not long gone by the end of the film. I think he's recurring. I feel like he's been in some of the earlier ones. I think he LG has come up before. Maybe. Uh, uh, I don't remember specifically, but I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, no, I guess not. Oh, he oh. was in Seven. Oh, okay. He was one of the guys in Seven. He was uh, cowboy in seven. So it makes sense that he's back for this one, just like the professor. We are doing essentially a seven remake. Yeah, yeah. Well, a bit of a twist at the end, but basically seven. Right. So yeah, I, I guess we, we could kind of briefly get into that. That, you know, we've covered seven and this is a remake of seven. I was reading that uh Malibu Express is a remake of another early non-Malibu Bay. Andy Sedaris film called Stacy that I need to see. <laughs> you showed me the poster art for the or the Italian poster for this, and oh my god, porno detective, porno, <laughs> porno detective, incredible. <laughs> yeah, she's like wearing no pants. Uh, her legs are spread. There's this huge bullet in between. <laughs> looks totally fucking insane uh and apparently like it's essentially a remake it's just cody aveline uh and his girlfriend were both this main character stacy in the original version and he just sort of divided cody out of his girlfriend to be a separate character and the main character which is wild all right. Which is why I guess he has to be useless. He can't affect any change. And he just really <laughs> needed to be charming that first time. <laughs> so LG calls Travis. Travis Abilene. Uh, our worst Abilene yet. <laughs> so far. Yeah, worst Abilene so far. So far. this is He's only here for the one. Abilene's don't last. Yeah, it's... Is is there like an Abilene curse or something? Because they all survive to the end, but they don't come back. Like, it's always suggested that they're doing something else somewhere. But my theory is that Donna is kind of like a Black Widow and she, like, consumes them at the end of each film. Because <laughs> they're always hers and she's That's very right. protective of him in this one. But then we're yeah. never going to see him again. Yep. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, LG calls uh, Abilene. He's on his suitcase satellite phone on the Malibu Express. <laughs> and then we also get Kim and Patty Cakes who are doing this really corny, uh, like a stage cowgirl act in Vegas. Yeah, I feel like this act wouldn't get a lot of traction in Las Vegas. Yeah, it does not seem like it's uh, all that much of anything. It it feels really, it, it feels like something from a Ray Dennis Teckler film almost. Kind of. It's got a incredibly strange creatures kind of vibe. Yeah. Which isn't something you want 
in, no. in your your Vegas act. I'd rather rather have a chooper pipe than an incredibly <laughs> strange creature pipe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the sports reporters from Hard Ticket to Hawaii are there in the audience, except I guess they're spies now. I don't they think they spies. were spies last time, were they? They were not spies. <laughs> then. They are spies now. They are. Uh, this time they're watching uh, Mr. Shivo. Yeah. Mr. Shivo, uh, who is <laughs> a real scumbag. He, they're, they're white slavers. So they... Yeah. Uh, abduct women into sex slavery internationally and some of them they also just use for snuff films yeah but uh they, they can't flush out shivo's boss right which is this guy uh i have his name somewhere it's like charles william patterson or something like that something like that he he gets three names he's important enough yes exactly so Kim and Patty Cakes are going to be their replacements as spies. <laughs> the reason they need replacements. It's because they're terrible at their fucking jobs. They're incredibly bad. <laughs> hey, look, those guys were actively watching. Just got these two flowers and put homing devices <laughs> in them. Yeah, they're they're like watching these dudes and they like and they're like, let's put a homing device in like they're in public, they're being watched by these two dudes. They hold it up carefully oh. so that we can fully see it on camera and then place Mr. it Shiro. in a distinctive flower. And then go over to the hostess and say, give the flower to those two specific people yeah. who are watching us right now. Yeah, he he delivers it to this lady, uh, Glenn, Shivo's assistant, Glenn, who's also kind of a major villain in this. There's a lot of villains in this, just like there were in Seven. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a whole conspiracy of people who are evil and I guess they're working together, although we never see it. Yeah, they're they're all sort of a network. We, we do get some vague uh, references to people calling each other. And I guess it's all a Picasso trigger scheme in the end. Spoilers ish, but it's sort of obvious when you get near the end. It's like, wait a second, there's still Movie left <laughs> after they yeah, kill yeah. the one guy. I'm like, this isn't over. Yeah, they killed the the main boss who's setting up the, all these assassinations, and there's 20 minutes left after he's dead. Yeah, like Ortiz is gone, and there's 20 minutes left. That's not going to be just hanging out on the Malibu Express, uh, talking about your ill-gotten goods this time. So, well, if it was Ray Dennis Steckler, it might be. It could be. So, yeah, I, I like that they're annoyed that Kim and Patty Cakes are taking over. As, like, they're not doing a good enough job as undercover agents. Like, yeah, how are you going to get any closer to these guys? You, you're, <laughs> What's your in? Doesn't make sense. So uh, they, uh, Glenn gives the flower to this lady who gives it to them at the door. You know, they watched leaving. him give the flower to her and they just took the flower. Like We know they were watching them. They were talking about watching them. And then it cut <laughs> to them. <laughs> the first thing they do is put a homing bug in a flower and then give it to them. And they just, it was like, oh, wow, flowers. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, you know, this nice Las Vegas uh, hostess wouldn't lie to us. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> they they completely suspect nothing. And oh, they, yeah. they get in the car and they're driving and they hear about the assassination of Salazar. 
in Paris at the museum. And then Shivo's guy, Glenn, shows up and he kills him with a bazooka. They're like, oh yeah. shit, is that a bazooka? <laughs> Boom. I just love the way, yeah, I love the way they, they're just driving along. It's like, that helicopter's got a bazooka. The fat guy's like, what? <laughs> Kaboom. <laughs> it's like, well, rip those guys. Yeah. We if we hardly knew you, they don't have names in the script. They just show up as agent. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think last time they were just sportscaster, so <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. Uh, and then we cut to Edie's. Edie's is back. Or Edie Edie's, is back. Edie's back. Her her restaurant isn't as much of a location in this one, but she does more, I think. Yeah, she is one of the main agents. And Ortiz is hanging out there at at Edie's. Mr. Ortiz very much enjoyed his meal, but he's way too cool to talk to anyone. <laughs> yeah, of course. And he's got his right-hand dude who tips a waitress to put these yellow lays on a couple, uh, Larry and Susan, who are spies in the organization who theoretically were involved in the death of the guy that we saw in the last movie, even though... We know they were not involved in that movie in any way. Yeah, yeah. Well, just as the sportscaster guys had nothing to do with the death either, because they weren't <laughs> spies then. I guess maybe secretly they were. We didn't know it then. Uh, God, I, I don't I, believe that from them. I think they. <laughs> I think they just they're just playing different characters, and the sportscasters are the sportscasters. Yeah, yeah, I think maybe they're completely different characters, but it's weird that they're supposed, like, these are revenge killings for <laughs> the death of the guy who died in the last movie. Yeah, and none of the people killed so far were in that movie as, at least as the, as agents. No, I mean, the only people that they ultimately try to go after who we know were related are Turin and Donna. No, they're not going to kill them, obviously. God, no. <laughs> so our two local thugs, who are maybe also a couple, as you mentioned, like they have a few things where it's like, oh, those are real ladies men. They, they got a real case of the nut gaze, but I don't know. <laughs> oh, Clayton and Hondo. They're, they're my favorite Hondo. of the villains. Yeah. Uh, they're a real couple of... of uh, <laughs> they, they, it's It's like... In uh, Diamonds Are Forever, the James Bond movie, they have a very similar energy to those two henchmen who are a couple. <laughs> <laughs> They're just so supportive of each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of it also is that for whatever reason, Andy Sedaris likes pairs. Uh, he always likes to have two characters paired together. Maybe it's just because that makes exposition a lot easier. True. <laughs> Because, of course, you've also always got Donna and Taryn together. And they also kind of seem like they should be a couple much more than Donna should be with Travis or Taryn should be with that punk <laughs> who can't <laughs> golf. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they date, like, the biggest losers they can find. <laughs> Almost explicitly. It seems like they always have the lamest guys in the movie, specifically. <laughs> it's strange. Like, why don't... Well, why isn't Donna with Harold Diamond as Jade? That seems like a more logical connection because those that guy's in all of these movies. Yeah, and he's, it, you know, he, he actually looks cut out of stone. <laughs> it, well, well, Jade is with fits. Edie, that's why. Right, Jade is with Edie. They're, they're background characters who have their <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Clayton and Hondo assassinate Larry and Susan. 
on the beach. <laughs> I forgot they had names. Yeah, I, I think it's just because we get it right at that moment. They say mm-hmm. they call each other's names and then they go down the beach and they're immediately killed. <laughs> yeah, just just like shot, not not quite broad daylight, but like ten feet away from the restaurant. Yeah, it's it's like it's nighttime, but it's on a beach and it's well lit. Yeah. Uh, and then next day, Donna and Turin wake up on their boat and get going. I can't believe they didn't shower together. I thought they were they. They somebody on the set must have thought of it at least the way she was getting undressed. Well, while Donna was in the shower, and it definitely no felt way. like that's where it was going. It's like how yeah. how are they not getting in the shower together? That seemed like that's where it was going to start. But we have Donna showering. We have Turin putting on her. Uh, wetsuit for them to swim to shore just in time before the a model plane crashes into their boat and explodes in a huge fucking fireball what do you think of my headband i think it's really cool you've really (laughs) got style thanks bro yeah well that's especially the one where it's like these guys are a couple right yeah oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so back to Texas, we get uh, the death of poor <laughs> Lopez. <laughs> <sighs> so so they picked Lopez. He was just some guy, some guy in this it's, area. The I, I only think Latino. Yeah, I feel like he's just a ranch hand on he LG's is. farm. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they picked him because he's the only Latino. But they found out that he can't speak Spanish or drive a jeep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like the actor yeah the actor right right okay yeah yeah so, so yeah they got uh, sadaris's son to do the stunt oh okay that makes sense yeah. <laughs> so yeah lopez uh he gets in a jeep and we we're supposed to believe that the explosion that kills lopez is meant for lg yeah we yeah, see a like couple a... thugs in a van uh cause the explosion it's like it's shot to make it suggest that they don't realize that it isn't lg in the jeep but i guess that it's just that they don't even expect it to be lg later on yeah yeah it's no because lg was supposed to be the one driving the jeep but he said lopez to go get sandwiches from the house but it was remote controlled bombs so they knew or maybe they weren't watching because when it becomes like it's a revelation later that it was to get lg and bring everyone there so that they could exterminate all of picasso trigger's competition it kind of looked like they just weren't paying attention though yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) And, and it takes lg way too long to figure all this out considering he's there yeah yeah exactly so Wait he a phones second, the jeep <laughs> like t- <laughs> two hours later. Wait a second. Well, I think it's because they looked. They, someone had been doing the forensics on it. And they realized that it was a remote device rather than uh, something that was triggered by. Like it, it, it had to be something. Someone was actually there watching. Or yeah, know. yeah. It wasn't. A, it couldn't have been a car bomb. Right. So he phones up Travis. And he says he's also called Pantera. She's going to meet him at the uh, airport tomorrow. Uh, And he's like, I don't want to work with some girl because he's (laughs) the lamest Abilene ever. (laughs) Uh, Pantera, I'm always 
I'm always picturing uh, the metal band. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, and she has been, this is where we get the background that she's been quote unquote undercover with Salazar for two years, which, no. Yeah, <laughs> she, I don't know. She's just been with him. Uh, she's, <laughs> yes. she's just actually his girlfriend. Yeah. Uh, so they, they also need to meet with the professor. Oh my God. Yay. Oh, yes. <laughs> like, we'll take the professor's private jet to Cattle Lake. I'm like, oh, hell, the professor. Yeah. And then uh, Donna and Turin hitch a ride into town and they are just loudly talking about being spies all the way, everywhere they go. Do you go. think my cover was blown? <laughs> oh, the U.S. government wouldn't allow your cover, your spy cover to be blown like that on a train. <laughs> I, I really like the bit where they're at the train station and uh, they, they do the snorkel in your pocket gag and it's like, <laughs> Turin. It is a snorkel uh, about some guys that they're looking at. It's like, is that yeah. a snorkel in your pocket? Like, Turin, it's a snorkel. It's like, I'm having a bad day. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, so good. So they get to the airport. They fly to Molokai with their cargo plane, of course. Yeah. They phone up Jade from their plane phone to let him know that they're coming and that there's all this shit going down that he needs to be aware of. He spends like a significant portion of the movie just sitting in front of an aquarium at a phone. Yeah, he's like, I don't know, spying on SeaWorld or something. I don't I think he works there. Oh. But like okay. that's that's his cover or right. that's like his main job. I don't know. We don't really come back to it often. It's just every time they phone him, he's just sitting in front of this big aquarium wall. Yeah. You know? So the baddies who blew up Lopez, the two dudes in the van. The one guy really reminds me of the dude from the Oregonian with his. Absolutely. Like, yeah. <laughs> like his aviator shades. He's kind of balding. He's got the big red beard. He's uh, got the van. He's got the van. He's got not a plaid red jacket, but like a 70s red jacket. So, you know, era appropriate version of that guy. Yeah, he's he looks a lot like the omelet guy. <laughs> <laughs> cook for a while uh so they they've they're following pantera from the airport at dallas fort worth which Very by obviously. the way what an ominous airport that fucking the as that, you said the anxiety of that jet on the highway oh my god yeah i've, I've never seen this i guess i guess this is a thing but the, i am the familiar runway with is it, an yeah. overpass I horrifying can't. i hate it no awful like this gigantic jet over top of all these <laughs> tiny ass cars running underneath it what if it falls i mean i'm sure it's engineered to hell it back to make sure that doesn't happen but what if it falls yeah i mean most you know things are engineered a certain way until they aren't you know until yeah. there's a, a colossal failure yeah no yeah. that horrifying i i wouldn't but <laughs> well people do every day <laughs> you gotta yeah so she has sort of a sexy meeting with travis of course Turns out they knew each other from college. Which is weird. They're, yeah. I mean, we don't ever get her real name, just that now she's Pantera. Uh, they go to some country bar, and we, we learn about their past. And she says she's still in love with him, which is weird. The, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> obviously, she's, she's just, she is a double agent. Yeah, yeah. And it's pretty I mean, obvious been... early on. She's been palling around with this guy who goes to, like, Paris art exhibit. She's not still in love with Hick, boy. 
No, she's not in love with the she's, worst Abilene yet. She's forgotten that he existed until she saw him. It's like, oh, fuck, it's the high school guy. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, I I know how to manipulate him. He's easy. Uh, <laughs> we immediately go into a sex scene. And yeah. then they drive to Uncertain Texas, which is <laughs> great. Cool name. Real like, place, apparently. Yeah, just a tiny location with a fun name. Uh, they go to the Big Pines Lodge, which is just a cool piece of roadside Americana. Mm-hmm. So there they meet up with LG and uh, the van guys show up, of course. So conspicuous. <laughs> Extremely well. You know, they immediately spot them. They get in a speedboat. We get a speedboat chase. Hell yeah. Because, uh, 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 what is it? Uh, Travis and LG hop in the speedboat because he won't let pantera come along <laughs> you're a girl you have to stay behind <laughs> but you're an abilene and i'm an international spy yeah and, and like how this is what makes him the worst abilene because no abilene before that would be don't come along and he's like i need you to come along because i'm not a good shot they all know the other yeah. ones knew their flaws this yeah. one does not <laughs> and, and the other ones also respected the badassness of the women who hang out with them for unknown fully reasons. worshipped it it's it's what they yeah. were there for mm-hmm. so yeah we we do establish again travis is a bad shot <laughs> <laughs> everybody calls him out on it lg's like what i can't make the boat go anymore still you gotta hit him he shoots 20 shots and misses every single time <laughs> Uh, and then Pantera makes an amazing sniper shot from a barge as they're passing and takes off the guy who's uh, shooting at them. And then LG just like, okay, you take the wheel and switch places with me. I'll take care of the other guy. Yeah. <laughs> then we get everybody meeting up in Vegas. And it's it's the big meeting scene that you spoke of that... Uh, Andy Sedaris <laughs> makes sure is in a couple places in every movie so we can catch up the audience with everything that's happening. Yeah, I love how he puts how he phrases it phrases it. It's like, so all the characters could know what's going on, and hopefully the audience can too, but uh it doesn't always work out that way. True. Although I would say that this one is a lot more streamlined than Seven was in terms of the action stuff, mainly because of the way this one launches in phases, because we had the blowback section where it's good guys getting hit and assassinated and we we just get to the end of that and now it's putting together the team section and then executing the attack section where they kill off all the bad guys it's a mirror to that first part and then then you know the twist and that's it yeah the twist yeah yeah no it's, that's a it's by far the most act. linear yeah. yes it's a really solid third act structure yeah so uh Turin and Donna immediately don't trust Pantera, especially Donna. Although it really seems like jealousy. It does seem like jealousy, but I was like, you know what? I was already on the fence about Pantera. And then when Donna didn't trust her, I was like, okay, well, right. I'm on team Donna. So obviously yeah, not, yeah. not on team Pantera. It does kind of feel like protection of territory, but in the same way as like, no, that's that's my meat. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to eat that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not like I love this man and can't keep your hands off. Yeah, you know, it feels like a lion protecting a kill from another lion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. This is Pantera, a panther, of course. 
Oh, yes. <laughs> no, Panther, this is my side meat so that nobody knows I'm really with Terran. Yeah. So they plan to hit Toshi Lum of the, or, or who is, I don't know who, I can't remember what Toshi Lum's deal is. And there's also, of course, Shivo and Glenn, who worked for Charles William Patterson. I do have that in here. Uh, and the, the, he's the guy who runs the slavery slash snuff film organization. And they're his primary procurers. Yeah. So they're they're planning to hit all of these guys. They're, they're just going to do a bunch. And like, it's sort of, they use the word arrest. But there is at yeah, no point um, uh, uh, any any plan to arrest anyone. They come at them with explosives. <laughs> yeah, they're not trying to take him alive. There's one point where Jade uh, holds up a badge and the guy slices it in half. That's yeah. the closest to an attempt to take somebody alive. Yeah, arrest is kind of a euphemism here, I guess. <laughs> oh, I forgot there is another sort of mid-phase. It's uh, everybody gets laid is where Oh, yes. yes. Uh, Donna and Travis get it on. And this is where she, again, repeats to him. It's like, I don't trust Pantera. And he's like, you're just jealous. And he's like, I don't have a jealous bone in my body. You want to check? And she takes off all her clothes. And it's like, I don't know. That does sound kind of like maybe you're still kind of trying to maneuver him. <laughs> yeah, but she's right to do it. She's right. Yeah, she is correct. Somebody has to guide this stupid little man. Uh, speaking of stupid little men, we see Jimmy John. Uh, <laughs> what a lame fucking name, even. Yeah, Taryn's sleeping with this guy. It's the same guy that she's sleeping with in the last one. He doesn't yeah. even do the action. No, he does nothing. He is just this dude who's losing at golf to Whitey, Andy Sedaris. He's getting destroyed. Oh, he's getting hustled. <laughs> yeah uh so yeah he loses at golf and then turin is there and andy or whitey throws him like 20 bucks i'm like take her out to dinner you idiot would <laughs> 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 have taken all the rest of your money yep <laughs> so they uh she picks him up on an atv and they have some hot tub sex mm-hmm. you gotta have some hot tub sex in an andy sedaris movie at least one <laughs> Uh, so then Kim and Patty Cakes, I guess it, it's working. Their lame act attracted <laughs> Shivo to come and try and recruit them into their white slavery organization. <laughs> I got a theory. It's like, man, these guys, these guys aren't that great. Yeah, well, we don't want the greatest acts. We want the ones that nobody's going to miss if they stop showing up. Yeah, I, the, the, that is probably uh the the thing there that that sort of is the only logical outcome there <laughs> so yeah they're trying to recruit them and uh they're totally into it because they're going to yeah. like oh yeah no we have this other really great act that's even more thrilling like wow even more thrilling than this <laughs> <laughs> we could give you a private demonstration if you want to bring your boss here out of uh hiding yeah and like oh yeah no that that's not suspicious at all we'll totally do that yeah uh, th- they are fortunate to be a bunch of dumb spies in a dumb world <laughs> there are no good spies in this world uh the only one who's close is picasso Drager himself 
Well, it's it's the thing where both the bad guys and the good guys are equally semi competent. Like, yeah, they're they're capable of doing things competently, but most of the time, everybody's low key kind of dumb. <laughs> Beer commercial level of intellect. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking frat party. Uh, yeah, that works too. <laughs> Uh, and this is also where Travis realizes that there's something amiss about Picasso Trigger's supposed death, although it's a while before that shoe drops. Like, we see him being suspicious, and then he never mentions it to anyone, and then at the very end, he just happens to immediately go to where he knows he is. Yeah, like, and and the way he comes to the realization, he just notices that Donna has a watch, and it's like, wait a second, now I'm going to look at all the photos of Picasso Trigger and see that the watch is on the other head when he's dead. Yeah, so it, oh, it was well. a fake guy. It was, it was <laughs> but, a different dude. Yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> oh, well, we're not going to worry about that for like another hour. Yeah, we, we've got all these other plans to execute right now. Yeah. So Travis and Donna meet up with the professor. Woo, professor! <laughs> he, he's got his... He's become Q. He's got all these great explosive toys <laughs> i love his gadgets here's a remote control car with a bomb on it here's a boomerang with a bomb on with it a bomb on it <laughs> here's a spear gun and you can put a bomb on it this is where you can attach a bomb to it's got a little hook yeah <laughs> uh here's a crutch one of the things it does is has a bomb it's got a missile launcher built in like oh okay excellent <laughs> Uh, and then Jade gets it on in the gym with Edie. Mm-hmm. So our secondary characters are also getting it on. Professor is getting it on with his Swedish second-in-command. Yep. Who just is there <laughs> to make sex jokes and have her top pulled down. <laughs> her, her entire character. That is it. She she does get a name, though. It's, yeah. Her name is Inga. Inga. Of course it is. <laughs> of course it is. Uh, and then the the plan goes into action. So first, Jade and Edie pose as phone service people. And <laughs> I don't really get any point of this plan. This is like the epic, stupid plan, a uh, stupid spy plan. This feels like a Saturday Night Live sketch of a spy plan. <laughs> this, yeah, they, they hide a, a submachine gun at in a flower pot outside the office and they just like it's saturday for one they yeah. they bust into an office on a saturday afternoon and they're like super unconvincing because you know harold diamond does not look like he's working for the phone company <laughs> he's, he looks he's got his he looks like american and... ninja <laughs> oh my god yes yeah he's got his coveralls and like the entire top half is unbuttoned it's absurd uh, his sleeves are like rolled up it's like yeah i'm a repairman but you have to know i'm super buff yeah exactly and they're they're like yeah well we'll come back tomorrow and uh edie does have the presence of mind that is sunday afternoon but whatever we'll be on call is the thing uh saved it (laughs) (laughs) yeah and the guy's like what the fuck is all this about our phone's fine our our phones are working just fine what are you talking about it's like oh yeah no you're gonna want to reduce the static on then he like picks up the phone and slams it a couple times like 
okay, uh, not suspicious at all. This is like totally working out. <laughs> okay, so there's something really suspicious about those phone guys. I want you two huge guys to stand outside my office with guns from now on. All right. Uh, Rusty <laughs> and Kiyoshi. What, what were they like? Kiyoki. What were they trying to do here? I have they didn't no put idea. A bug on the phone. They didn't. <laughs> they hid the gun in a flower pot, but you didn't need to go into what the. Well, it's okay. Again, it's the sports. It's the wrestling yeah. thing. This is a wrestling promo. Yeah, we're gonna yeah. come here tomorrow afternoon. We're gonna lay the smack down <laughs> in this very office. You're right. Oh my god. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's it. That's what it is. <laughs> so uh, Sunday afternoon, uh, uh, Kim and patty cakes do their sexier cowgirl performance quote unquote i don't I know guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh for shivo glenn and their boss also uh obviously jade and Edie return for their assigned return to toshi's office <laughs> uh, they, they have a huge fight with the bodyguards well, they're immediately like, okay, we're here to arrest everyone. Like, yeah, obviously you guys were not <laughs> phone repairmen. Are you kidding me? Now we're prepared and we have a bunch of guns ready. A big kung fu fight breaks out. Yep. So Rusty's eyes get gouged out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Jay does this cool thing. He's like being pinned on the ground. So he like flips up and kind of, it's hard to describe what he does, but he ends up gouging out the dude's eyes. Yeah, it's kind of hard to see what he does, honestly. It's it's one of the less clearly filmed uh, action moments. And then uh, Kiyoki gets punched out, I guess, to death? I, I'm not really clear. Yeah. <laughs> the other I big don't guy. Know. I don't remember what happens to him. And then he... we... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. And this is intercut with what's going on with Kim and Patty Cakes, where they suddenly say, you're under arrest, and immediately shoot both uh, Charles William Patterson and Shivo. And Shivo, in dying, shoots Patty Cakes in the face, but it's just a just a graze. Yeah, I thought she was going to die, and I remembered how, and it just kind of brought me back to Seven. It's like, wait a second. And seven, the assassins, the good guys didn't all make it out alive, and they didn't all succeed. Well, there was that guy who had his incredibly bad stand-up comedy yeah. act, who does sort of seem like the analog to these girls. So, yeah. it does seem just, like they should just get shot. <laughs> yeah, but... Because it's yeah, really ill-conceived. Just a graze. <laughs> yeah, just a graze. Uh, Juan, the really big... The the Miss, or Mr. Universe dude. Uh, oh, yeah. Comes he out. just comes out of this fucking like wrestling leotard thing fucking bodies glenn yeah yep. and like like you can see, this shot in particular you can see just how fucking jacked this man is he's huge he's like arnold schwarzenegger size his bicep is bigger than the dude's head <laughs> he just fucking destroys him yep <laughs> uh so toshi and jade have a big brawl in his office and Toshi goes out the window exactly like the guy in the previous movie. <laughs> I love it. The dummy goes flying. It's the, they use the same building, the same office, and the same window as the last movie. Yeah, it's the one they knew that they could get. <laughs> it's the one that was available to rent. It's awesome. So good, though. Yep. But, and then, 
the follow-up of course with rusty kool-aid manning in through the wall with the uzi but he's blind so just like blood pouring down his face and he's blindly firing an uzi he doesn't get through on the first hit through the wall <laughs> it takes him a bit it's good it's good and then of course you know he does the whole thing he's screaming he's shooting and then Edie just shoots him and yeah. he's done yeah and then uh Donna and Turin go after Clayton and Hondo, our, our secret gay couples after each other. <laughs> what? I love to like watching him. It's like, and you think these two have a reputation as ladies' men? That's a joke. Yeah. <laughs> <They're>, yeah. <laughs> I, it's it's real glass houses stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Clayton, no lady could ever outshine you. I feel the same way, bro. Yeah. And so they're, they're like sitting just like chilling on the beach to uh, have it, you know, it's been another successful night of being Clayton and Hondo. Uh, they have like <laughs> the easiest job ever, honestly. Yeah. They seem to be having a really good time. <laughs> like they've got their missions every once in a while, but when they're not on a mission, they just have picnics. They're in Hawaii. They just lay on the beach. They're having a great time. Yeah. So that's what they're doing. And you know, Donna and Turin ride by on motorbikes, so they give chase. Yep. Motorcycle chase time. Motorbike chase. Uh, Turin ultimately kills both of them. She shoots Hondo, and uh, Clayton gets it with the fucking boomerang. <laughs> yep. He gets he gets exploded. You can boomerang see. Boomerang explode. <laughs> they actually had to, like, cut part of it because the dummy got exploded in half, and showing like just a severed half torso of a of a dummy would uh, uh, do something that they would have to bump it up a rating. So they, you can only see part of the top half of the dummy falling, but it cuts before you realize it's only half a dummy. I guess it would be NC seventeen or something because I, I mean these so. are definitely R rated. There's so oh, yeah. much nudity. Yeah, there there was something about showing like a cut in half dummy that they could. It might do be it. a. Th- it might be a thing because like these are made to show on like late night HBO or uh, or USA Network. That's kind of like the prime point for these. So yeah, maybe it's something that like the TV package wouldn't wouldn't allow it. Because both this one and later when Ortiz gets exploded and you just see bits <laughs> of stuff flying, you want like a severed arm to fly by or something. Oh yeah. Well, they they chose the sh- the color of the shirts intentionally so that you could see like red shirts. Bits of clothing. Flying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so Ortiz hears a news report that Shivo got hit. He's like, "Uh oh, <laughs> something's coming down." Wait a second. <laughs> After sports, we have our secret agent news, and then the weather. Yeah, uh, and his second in command is this guy Spiel, and he spots Turin showing up. He's like, "Uh oh." And then she gets this RC car that uh, uh, from the professor. Yeah, with she, the box. Like, yeah, she rides it up into the house and explodes a wall so they can get in. Yeah, one of the, like <laughs> up a surfboard through one of those paper walls. I mean, Turin does a fucking full on commando assault. She's like Schwarzenegger. She's just got a she's got a gun. She just like fucking goes in and takes everyone out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Smee- it's awesome. Spiel shoots her with a shotgun, but of course she is wearing a vest and she gets back up and she just fucking blows everyone away. Yep. 
she does like the most action movie stuff. She like she got both Clayton and Honda or Hondo. Donna was just like along for the ride for that shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I, I love the way they get Ortiz. He's like hiding behind a motorcycle. I, <laughs> I, I think it's Donna hits the seat of the motorcycle with a spear gun. And he yes. just looks down at it, sees that there's like all this dynamite strapped to the spear and looks up at the camera. Oh, it should totally be like Wiley e. Coyote holding up a sign that says gulp. Yeah. yeah. Or or that guy in uh, what is it? Enter the ninja who just shrugs <laughs> after he gets throwing start. Yeah, uh, Christopher George. Yeah, that's yeah. an incredible final death. That's a great death. This is a good one too. This one's great, yeah. Donna fires the arrow, fucking motorbike explodes. Uh, he explodes. And yeah, bits flying everywhere. I, I really want just like one leg or arm to go flying past, but <laughs> no. That's it. That's our bad guy's dead. Or is it? We still have uh, 20 minutes left. Yeah. <laughs> Which is what they did in Hard Ticket to Hawaii too. Like they're they're driving oh, away yeah, from the car. Right. I was like, wait a second, we didn't shoot that one guy. Yeah, who got <laughs> Seth? <laughs> who got that bastard, Seth? Well, they, but they do that a couple times in this movie because they do it once yeah. here and then again at the very end. So Travis goes and meets up with Pantera, uh, and he's wearing his cast. He said he t- he lies to her. He knows mm. that she can't be trusted. Yeah. He says he sprained his ankle jumping out of bed. And yet, he's still, I mean, it's, it's a flimsy thing because he's still going on this extremely dangerous mission with a broken well, and, leg. Yeah, and he's really not, like, when he's using, when he's turning the crutch into a gun, it's really obvious he's doing it the whole time. Like, there, mm-hmm. there's so much time that Picasso Trigger has to stop him from doing that or do anything. I, he just doesn't. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah, know. I mean... I didn't realize he, at that point he was even still trying to hide that it was good, but I guess he was. I mean, I guess because, like, why would he? What's he doing? Why? <laughs> why doesn't? Why? Why does the Picasso Trigger not attempt to stop him in any way? Well, it, it, nobody really makes sense here. It's more about just what's going to make a cool scene, right? So this is where there's the reveal about Lopez having. Uh, it, it wasn't an accident that it was Lopez. It was intentionally Lopez to get LG into this. Yeah. Yeah, it was and... this... To get them... It was like this whole thing to get the agency involved to kill Ortiz for Picasso Trigger so he wouldn't have to. Yeah, basically the Fed's taking out all of his competition, both Ortiz in Hawaii and patterson and his guys in vegas so that he can take over all of their businesses yeah Yeah. we have the whole salazar explaining to uh abilene his whole villainous plot of course as he's like converted a room in his house into uh bob ross's studio where he displays his painting of course which i guess this is the original painting and he donated a copy to the museum because it's just such a great painting. How could he part with it? <laughs> <laughs> I just love that Sidaris just commissioned a guy 200 bucks. And this is what he got. Is like, yep, this, I'll use this. This is it. Mm, perfect. Yeah, no, that, that'll do. It's, it's, it is the fish that I wanted. <laughs> no notes. 
So uh, Travis, obviously, he during the whole villainous uh, speech, he's building the gun out of the crust. <laughs> so obvious, you can Blatantly. see the freaking uh, else, like the the digital input panel, like it's yeah. pointed at the camera that's pointing at him. It's it's so dumb. And then you know he he finally builds it and he shoots, but there's a big glass shield in between him and Salazar that he did not know about. Yeah, and the camera shoots a rocket at him. <laughs> Although he's able to dodge it, of course, because he's an Abilene. Yeah. Uh, Pantera comes in and he kisses her. Or, or first he shoots at her and she rolls and goes no. Yeah, and he does like the whole thing of uh, oh, what's her name in that Beverly or Rebecca or whatever in Untamed Mistress or not Untamed Mistress the. Uh, Barbara from Treasure of the Amazon just shooting at whatever. It's like, oh, I didn't know who oh, it yeah. was, so I just shot anyway. Yeah, I, I figured it must have been a bad guy because it's the bad guy's house. Yeah. And it was, but you know, they yeah. you know, she she and him kiss, but she's pulling out a knife the whole time and then <laughs> Donna gets her. Yeah. Yeah, it's like literally she's going to stab him in the back while the kiss is happening, but she gets speared. She gets speared through the back by Donna with the spear gun mm-hmm. so salazar <laughs> takes off in a hovercraft which is super cool yep his own little mini personal hovercraft he just like rockets out on the beach with it and like oh god let's go after him very obviously a stunt double but it works yeah yeah <laughs> uh travis hops on a sea and chases after him and he's like i'm going to arrest you <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's like shooting the hovercraft he's like stop or i'll shoot i've seen, I've you, seen shoot. you shoot very <laughs> fair so he just like he is not going to stop for him because he is not going to get shot by him yeah which of course he doesn't get shot by him no donna has a spear gun and she explodes him <laughs> <laughs> all villains get exploded in this movie yep i, I love the bit uh Sidaris is commenting here is like here we've got travis running back all huffing and puffing and tired when donna did all the work yeah yeah exactly and then i don't get exact it's it's another double because it cuts back to the house and <gasps> salazar's still there <laughs> yeah yeah they're they're talking about it like hey so who was the double who got killed in paris like way back in the beginning i don't know oh well at least we yeah, definitely got guy. the real one this time and of course, it cuts back to his house and Salazar shoots the medallion guy who shot him in Paris, but it wasn't him. He's just like clearing his trail, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but then, after... <laughs> and Travis is like, eh, clear up loose ends and he shoots a rocket at the house and blows it up. <laughs> yeah, he's got, it's like the professor's homing thing from Seven. Right. Because it's... Yeah. Uh... It is the professor's homing thing from Seven, quite frankly. Yeah, he originally just pointed the laser at Salazar's pacemaker, and then he just pushes some buttons, and now the rocket's going to chase after his pacemaker. Yeah, and it doesn't go... could have done that on the fucking jet ski. You could have done that at any point, but, you know, order of operations. It's more fun this way, because now we have the last twist. (sighs) So it flies to the house, and boom, kaboom. Yeah. Uh... Uh, rip Salazar, house explodes. 
And, you know, the requisite final meetup, everyone gets together and, and uh, Turin says that she's going to keep the painting, of course. <laughs> yeah, you know, the real one's at the museum and this one's just a copy. Or is, or is it, it? <laughs> stealing money? Uh, and that's it. That's the end of that's Picasso Trigger. <laughs> yeah, that's the movie. And then we get the credits with just a retrospective on the movie we just saw. Yeah, lots you of get fun. a bunch of shots. It's a good time. Uh, I I don't enjoy it as much as any of the previous ones. I'd say it's exactly equal to Seven, which it's basically a remake of. I think I like it better than Seven, but I like um, Miami or Malibu Express and Hard Ticket better than this. Yeah, I, I think both of them are definitely superior. Like this one's a fun ride. It, you know, he has found his formula and it works. This one's the most streamlined. Mm-hmm. Like the other ones, they're really hectic. They're all over the place, and that's sort of what I love about them. But this yeah. one is definitely a much more streamlined version of both those and of Seven. Yeah, I remember with Hard Ticket, it was like so all over the place. I had to make a diagram to keep track of where the snake was, and it turned out the snake doesn't actually move. No, the snake is just always in the one place. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, uh, crazy, crazy uh, stuff in those ones. Whereas this one, it's a pretty straight line. You just get your phases of action. Uh, The blowback, uh, building of the team, everyone has sex, blowback to the blowback. Yeah. Twist in the end. Yeah, yeah. Wait, which one of us got the real Salazar? <laughs> Screech! Yeah. Let's just use the fucking crutch, uh, the crutch, uh, crutch rocket. The crutch rocket. I love it. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, do you have any last thoughts on Picasso Trigger before we move on to our second feature? Uh, no, I think I think we've both covered it. Um, All right, I really, well. really enjoyed this, like, WWE James Bond. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is a WWF, uh, WWE James Bond, a pro wrestling styled James Bond. Mm-hmm. Uh, good, a, a good milieu for Andy Starris. All right, well, on to part two. And we're back for part two, where we're talking about the 1980 film golem by Piotr Schulken, uh first in the apocalypse tetralogy box set from vinegar syndrome this movie is a lot <laughs> this uh this movie hit me in a way that i didn't expect it to based on the premise really cool it's it's a very eerie and unsettling movie but at the same time there is that weird core of what i talked about when we watched like goodbye 20th century or even v that weird blank eastern block humor (laughs) where there's there's a comedy to what's happening but it's really bleak the ending actually kind of reminded me of uh stroisek in that it's like Mm. this is all upbeat and cheerful but nothing funny is happening but i'm laughing anyway (laughs) and nothing good has happened really like no at some point and this is sort of i and and again not unlike goodbye 20th century and sort of the abstract surreal depiction of i guess the end of the world because it seems to happen somewhere in the middle of the movie i do feel yeah that they make reference to the 
to an atomic calamity or an atomic cataclysm from 1941, but it does kind of feel like one, like at one certain point, probably about halfway through it, one scene, the world's yeah. fine. And the next, everything's gone to shit. And, but at the same time, the setting, the sets don't look that different between the scenes. It's just kind of the attitude of everything changes. Well, and it's there's hard just to explain. And there's just a lot more stuff out there. Like you, the the big one is when you return to that courtyard with all the opening and closing windows, and just every one of them has been shattered. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, yeah, that's. Yeah. I think that's the big one. Yeah, and, and I feel like that's sort of the turning point where he comes out of a building and it's like suddenly the world has ended. Yeah, I kind of get the feeling that that we're not necessarily watching the memories. We're probably watching the scenes in chronological order, but we aren't really being told how much time has passed between them. And he doesn't seem to be aware that any time has passed between scenes. Well, he also seems to be able to be switched off. Or yes. he, he goes into fugue states. He can be controlled to do things that he doesn't know he does. Uh, he's the perfect worker. Uh, he's, <laughs> he's the man of the future. Uh, yeah. Night. Yes, per not. Our, uh, our protagonist, our poor guy who is in a perpetual state of not knowing what the fuck is going on. Because he's sort of designed that way. He's yeah. a facsimile of himself. Uh, there was this uh, Marvel graphic novel with uh, Nick Fury. I guess maybe it was a miniseries. Nick Fury versus S.H.I.E.L.D., I think it oh. was, where S.H.I.E.L.D. got taken over by this replicator, which would, it, it, it's basically this, they, you know, it, it kills off the original and then it replaces it with this replicant, but the replicants deteriorate quickly. And then you just keep having these people that are copies of copies of copies and they just keep degrading over time. Like the Abilenes. Like the Abilenes, exactly. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's one of the you know Marvel is not much for horror exactly, but yeah. it's uh, a rare story that I found kind of weirdly skin crawling. So okay. it it sort of uh, echoes with this, which is yeah, there's there's a really skin crawling nature to Pernod and his perpetual uncanny valleyness. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I think I described this movie in the chat and. I don't think it's the first movie I've described this way as Uncanny Valley, the movie. Yeah, it's got a lot of that. And I think it's both in the surreal approach that it takes to everything that happens, you know, partially that it's really lo-fi. Uh -huh. uh, you, you don't have a huge budget to work with. You're just working with kind of dystopian Soviet architecture. Uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you, you can you, you don't need to show an explosion. You just show the aftermath of an explosion. Yeah, it's it's interesting that they were able to do that because the Soviet architecture that they were shooting in doesn't look nice to begin with. No, and it looks very brutalist, and that sort of supports its uh, weird authoritarianism that uh, everybody's sort of dealing with. Because I, I, I guess we could sort of start to get into the plot and concept mm -hmm. is that our Pranat, after... Uh, there's there's the police interrogation first yeah uh, uh he's being interrogated by the cops he he knows nothing he, he knows nothing even though he was apparently present while the murder was happening 
Yeah, he just, uh, I mean, he, he wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't his thing. No, he, he was. He just works. I, I he just works, work, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I, like, I don't understand. For, <laughs> you've lived at this house for 30 years and you don't know your neighbor's name? I, I, I work. <laughs> I gotta I, go to work. And I, I mean, I sympathize with him there. I kind oh, of feel yeah. that. Uh, I don't, I don't know my neighbor's names, but uh, <laughs> he, uh, he, he is just this weird facsimile. So it's that's the reason he did. Like he doesn't know his father's first name is yeah. sort of the big red flag in this batch. And the uh-huh. detective is just like nonplussed. It's like, okay, well, I don't, I don't really understand, but you don't seem to be messing with me. You just seem to be null and void. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah basically he says like do you even exist like have you interacted with anything and it kind of is a thing where he no longer exists and it, you know he's let out of the interrogation he gets out into the hall and his own dead body is being dragged away like the glasses yeah. have fallen off and that's a very <laughs> eerie and intense moment because you've been looking at him in this interrogation for some time. So you're very much able to recognize him as the body being dragged away, but he doesn't quite. Yeah. And it's interesting that the people dragging the body don't really react to it either. Well, I guess because they are aware that he is this facsimile person. So it doesn't matter so much. They figure out like, yeah, I mean, we can control that probably or whatever. I'm, so something that's been confusing me, I've had to watch this movie a bunch of times, actually, uh, but I can't figure out who does and doesn't know about what he is. I think almost no one. I think it's really just the scientists who we keep cutting to in that weird red monologue room that looks like it's it's much like 12 Monkeys when you have the scientists talking in the interstitials there, where it oh, feels yeah. like it's beamed in from the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're discussing how uh how it's like, oh shit, Pradat's waking up. Oh, what do you mean he's out and about and like running around in the town? Uh mostly just we, we cut back to them every now and again, and they're just mostly saying their scientific explanation about what's happened or what is happening. Yeah, and he's sort of a rotor problem where he is something that was supposed to go out but he's still a prototype and they weren't ready to put him out yet yeah you know it's not on the rotor problem where he is supposed to come out like 20 years from now or something yeah it's more like he needed more time in the literal oven yeah he's not really done well as a golem he uh, he needs to be baked uh and uh he's just not complete the programming isn't complete Mm -hmm. but they They've basically decided they're going to let him run around anyway, have people come in and do all these different tests on him, uh, social tests. And this is and this is told of over the course of like yeah. five scientist conversations because they, they are slow to they are slow to tell us what's going on. Yeah, it's more of a vibe than anything else. You, you just get a feel that, you know, something weird and uncanny is happening and they kind of gradually parcel out the information. It's not even all that important the scientific background to what they're it doing really isn't uh it's it's just you establish that he's being controlled by forces beyond himself and he doesn't really have any personal agency 
Uh, and it 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 is interesting just as sort of a metaphor for living in an authoritarian state where mm. he is just this being who is only for work. You know, that's the only thing that they want him for, but uh, they also need to check in and make sure that he is pure to the ideals that they want him to do. So, you know, they'll pull him in occasionally and uh, he just he has absolutely no control over his own destiny or anything that he does. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, his, uh, that well, the landlord, the, the first introduction to the landlord, and we don't even know he's a landlord. He's just a guy who shouts at Pernod off the screen from off screen to help him move an oven. And Pernod just does it. Yeah. There's a Holtram, right? Holtram. Yeah. Oh yeah, man. Yeah. Where <laughs> he doesn't show up for a bit, but I, ate this man ultra is a big jerk uh and it, it does seem like well I, I mean obviously he has a pre-existing relationship with holtram and the holtram family but he doesn't remember any of it they do and it uh, also th- seems like he had very little interaction with anyone mm-hmm. well i think they were i think the template the the person that he's supposed yeah. to be replacing did well that's what i mean oh, oh okay okay he he is Pernod. It's just he's a fake facsimile of Pernod. Pernod. So oh, th- that's the, the problem. Oh, okay, and the memories just haven't transferred over yet. I didn't realize they were planning to transfer them over. I don't even know that they are planning to transfer them over. I think it was just a matter of, uh, like, un- unless they say that at some point. I don't um, recall that no, being a thing. No, they don't. They don't. Yeah, no, I, I think it's just a matter of uh, he was unfinished and he they're not really done programming him and there, there's sort of a general vague instinct. He knows to go back to the place where he was, and he knows to continue his work because those are the things he's still programmed to do. But most yeah. of these people around him are a mystery to him. Yeah, yeah. And he's kind of a mystery to them, too. It's always like, if anyone recognizes him, it's like, you've changed. Yeah, but... they notice that he's off, that he, it, it, they feel the uncanny nature of him. But it's also, they know he got hauled off to jail, and you're not supposed to come back from that, I guess, <laughs> in, in this yeah. situation. Yeah, yeah. Because the first one he interacts with, um, oh, besides the homeless person, who turns hmm. out to be Holtram's son. Hmm. Uh, and uh, that guy's his... real wacky. That guy, oh, man. Uh, yeah. Uh, his... Well, well, first, Pernat couldn't get his uh, coat and hat back from the from the cop right. when he was arrested. It was this whole thing. It's the, like... the court, the yeah, the all of the stuff with that guy who uh, handles the coat room in the police department. Very strange, <laughs> uh, ultra bureaucracy stuff. <laughs> yeah, what's the number? No, I don't want to read the number. Say it to me. Yeah, <laughs> and like, no, you but... can't come back and look. And like, well, this isn't. My jacket and was like, well, it's the number is match. So tough, man. Get used to wearing it, buddy. It'll yeah. take a long time for this uh, for this complaint to go through. Yeah. As he does not write down a complaint of any kind. Of course not. He, there, <laughs> it, it, in an authoritarian state, people have no recourse. So he really doesn't have to worry about doing his job right. He just needs to do his job to the book. Mm hmm. <laughs> it doesn't matter how correctly or well it's done, as long as it matches up with uh, uh, the manual of what it says he's supposed to do. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I love the uh, the spring-loaded door that's designed to slap you in the face. Yeah. 
yeah, just so obnoxious. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, he gets the coat, and that's when he meets. I don't think the guy even has a name, right? Uh, he does not have a name. Some about half of these people have names, and yeah, probably a good fifty to sixty percent of them don't. Yeah, I'm looking at <laughs> the 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 cast list on IMDb, and there's some really hilarious names like Toilet Grandma. <laughs> champion of sleep uh, <laughs> uh yeah he's just rosina's brother he's, oh. <laughs> yeah yeah he's like hey man that coat give me the cigarettes and the matches from that coat or no i don't smoke i just hold on to them you're gonna go to that man aren't you be careful of that man he's dangerous and anyway. that man of course turns out to be his dad yeah his oh, dad's like- like it takes a long time well, for us to learn it's his dad. It, it does, sort of. Yeah, it does. Um, and it's also kind of implied that uh, Holtram is like a backyard golem maker. Yes, because uh, he's the uh, the. There's a hidden oven in his house that uh, is like pumping out a lot of heat. And there's that weird bit where the guy comes in the window of <laughs> Pernod's apartment and is looking for the the secret oven. And he's like, well, yeah. as you can see, it's not here and there's no other rooms. So I, I don't know what to tell you. It's got to be somewhere else. And he's like, no, no, it's not somewhere else. I know there is things. a giant <laughs> oven here. There's a giant <laughs> oven in here. You just don't know it. Like okay, <laughs> this guy seems. You said you haven't seen Brazil, right? No, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. There is a character Robert De Niro plays in that, uh, who's this guy who heroically comes and fixes you, fixes your ducts, <laughs> uh, and he feels like he's a riff on this character. I do think this is a, a movie that was heavily influential to Gilliam because it really feels like Brazil and 12 monkeys both borrow from this. Mm, I definitely feel the 12 monkeys vibe. Mm. Um, yeah. I'd have to see Brazil. I got a bit of a Truman show vibe because there is points where it feels like just the amount of how much more than him, everybody knows, even if they don't know like the mm. whole story. Well, it's just a true imposter syndrome movie, like through and through. He is yeah. this fake in his own life, and he is completely lost. And all he knows how to do is be a worker drone. And I mean, the the, the metaphor of it is not uh, difficult to parse in, in that regard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. After after dealing with this homeless guy, that's when we get the cool scene of the windows all opening and closing in sync and i don't know what they're doing it's like they're applauding or something it's sort of a strange bit like he looks up at the 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 side of the building and just all of the windows opening and closing it's eerie yeah it, it is eerie but i don't get it <laughs> yeah i'm not really sure to what be, to make of it is it meant to be a dream does he dream i don't i don't know if he does maybe he dreams in a way of mechanical things because he's oh. not uh he, he's not really a functioning human being he doesn't really have thoughts and memories on which to draw upon for that sort of stuff mm. so that's sort of where you know your your dreams are sort of this weird stew of everything you've experienced oh, okay but, uh i 
Yeah, I don't know, because it, it could just be a thing that's happening. And it sort of establishes that point, the sort of switch later to the post-apocalypse when we repeat the same shot and he looks up and all of the windows are just shattered. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, yeah, stuff like this, there isn't really more of this, like the window closing thing. Right. Uh, there is the extremely long escalator. And, and yeah, it kind of, I don't know, the whole thing feels like a, dream or i i still partly think that this could be all like in a lab but they're saying that it isn't it's so weird uh, yeah it, it it does seem to be a vaguely surreal space because that is the really weird one the the escalator to the the cinema but that is actually this sort of escalator into hell in a weird sort of way and it, they they get up to that top space and there's just like it's just like they're on the floor of an empty arena. Yeah. Where where a concert is like it's the place he imagined. It's just it's empty. Mm-hmm. And the girl's gone. Rosina yeah, yeah. has like vanished. Yeah. Although we haven't even met Rosina yet. No. <laughs> uh but we're going to actually right away because yeah. she is currently negotiating a sex work deal with uh a blind dude and his brother, and the blind dude really likes it when the brother describes to him what is happening in sex. Yeah. It's kind of gross. Yeah, Rosina's like, this is really weird, so I'm going to charge you extra, but I am still going to do it. Yeah, I mean, the job's a job. Yeah, for sure. And Pernad is just watching, waiting for them to get out of the way because these tiny, narrow-ass stairs, you, you can't go around each other right you have to be in single file uh he gets up to the top and across the hall from his place there's this i don't know what he's supposed to be so i only have him written down as shadow guy uh, i don't recall he's he's across the well it's not an apartment across from pernat because it's that just like a shadow corner where this guy comes out and the first time he sees him this time he gives him those seeds oh like, right so he's the guy with the seeds that all the stuff grows out of on his desk yeah yeah and he says okay. to him he's like these are human lives billions of them and pronounce like i don't think i should have this and the guy's like you already have it yeah and th- that's sort of what i sort of wonder in terms of the abstract elements and the spaces i sort of wonder if he sort of represents a vanguard of this golem technology or whatever i mean they don't consider him a golem but you know they are obviously playing on the golem myth with the oven and everything Mm -hmm. uh that it it seems like we've had an ai uprising sort of thing happen in between scenes that the the uprising took place and we're now in the post-uprising future where things are sort of shattered and everything is really contentious. And there's not really any proper authority in place anymore except the people who controlled the machines. Um, I, Well, I do get the feeling that there's no authority in place. Uh, Although like, there clearly uh, is at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And at the end. Yeah. Um. Which but suggests yeah. that perhaps they have reasserted themselves and sort of taken control as the people behind the machines as the new revolutionaries. Like, I don't think this one continues into the other four, 
uh, I, the next one is sort of a riff on War of the Worlds. That's that's really interesting, and we like, and we don't experience any of that because Pernat doesn't experience any of that. Yeah, like, he's very dissociated from anything actually happening. Yeah, if it's not right in front of him, he it's it's not part of his world. And it feels like there are failsafes built into him that there are places that he can he cannot go or that. Uh, in in terms of the escalator thing, that feels like a control for him, where he is pulled up this endless staircase that just keeps deteriorating and becoming stranger. And then I feel like at a point he is shut off and is sort of given a little bit of additional programming. And then we catch up with him when he is turned back on and she's been taken away. Yeah, there's definitely some points where he gets shut off that we don't see and that we don't right. realize has happened until you really got to pay attention to what's happening on the outside edges of the movie and what we're not yeah. being shown. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, he, he leaves Rosina's brother, the homeless dude. He meets up with Rosina yep. uh, on his way up. Uh, the guy gives him the seeds. Yeah, yeah. Uh he goes back down a bit later, and Rosina's blocking the entire staircase, uh, manspreading, basically. And here's where she says to him, uh, wow, you've really changed. You're you're completely different. And he's like, they kept asking about uh, Dr. Wasuary, and I couldn't give answers. Which is she, the guy who was murdered. Yeah, but she doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. Doctor, murder, answers? asking what no, she, she has no idea what any of this is like yeah and she's like, who what where have you been what is any of this shit it's just he was sent on some sort of sentry mission that is totally unrelated like i think he did kill this guy i, I do too and i suspect he does the other killing that happens later on yeah but we don't see it because it's not something that he's meant to personally experience so it's sort of cut out of his memory uh but she knows him, and I, I I wonder if she knows him as a customer. Oh, that could be. Uh, oh, maybe that like could as a, be. Yeah, sort of like a regular customer, because he lives in the same building, and obviously she works on the corner, and all he knows is work. But we know that he had some sort of criminal past, because he got taken away to prison, and that's what yeah. everyone thinks happened to him. Yeah, and that's where the scientists even say, like, hey, we got the the Pernat template, we got him out of prison. We don't know if he was a saint or a killer or what, but that's where we got him. And I mean, that is another element that's really kind of unsettling about it and interesting to the authoritarian nature part of it is all we know is, yeah, he was a criminal. And it, the the word criminal is essentially meaningless. It, you know, it, mm -hmm. what, what passes for crime is impossible for us to discern in this sort of weird landscape. Like, yeah. What crime did he commit? Who knows what is a crime? <laughs> yeah. Like, did he, like, did he try to assassinate the president or did he sing the wrong song out the window one day? Or, I mean, was the crime that he didn't want to do this body switch thing and that they oh, wanted him to do it? So that would uh, be a crime. <laughs> he's not agreeing with what, the, you know, he's resisting the state. <laughs> uh it, it it could be any of those things so it, it does make his past uh really nebulous and it's never filled in no not at all and, and the fact that they say like we got him from 
prison so he could be a saint. Yeah. People do. They know. <laughs> they know. But yeah, that's not something you hear a lot. Right. And I have to assume that he has some sort of classical training because he is able to do these, uh, like his work is doing uh, brass engravings. Mm-hmm. And he's very good at it. Uh, he's been hired to do a job of the hanged man tarot card. He doesn't know what that is. Yeah. But, you know, he knows how to make it. yep but it's interesting that this is sort of a skill that is built into him that this is what he remembers because it's work yeah um i figure well that's that's the main thing that they that's the main thing that they must want from these people is just yes work (laughs) production absolutely The, the scientists even say like hey too much uh excessive individualism in the world will just cause a bunch of chaos we need to this whole project is to try and stamp some of that out yeah i mean that is any authoritarian regime you want to remove any sort of loose frayed edges you you want people to all kind of look alike and think alike (laughs) Uh, next we meet uh, miriam the doll repair girl who also runs a grocery shop i think something like that that. and her crazy dad Uh, he's fun uh he's he's obsessed with this book yep uh this book that he needs all this money so much that the daughter like he's got he wants the daughter working every waking moment to get him money to buy this book that he somehow lost or that someone's taking away from him it's not clear yeah and there's this whole thing where he's trying he's like demanding money from her and i is did pernot plant the bill or did pernot find the bill pernot planted the bill he planted Uh, the bill and the guy freaks out because he thinks she's hiding money from him in the dolls and he starts like tearing the dolls up and uh pernot's like hey man chill out you're harming your daughter would you just chill what what's with you yeah can, can you do your crazy old man thing elsewhere and the guy just stops and looks at him like he does stop his crazy old man mental breakdown yeah because and... it's like huh there's something weird about this guy and yeah it does because it turns out that the book that he's so obsessed with is a book about the creation of pernat as a being like it's it's how to build a, a golem the book right that's what it is although to pernat he's like no this is an empty book with empty pages that says nothing right you know which is uh <laughs> well it's it's the it makes me think of the westworld thing it looks like That's... nothing at all yeah oh my god i couldn't think of what it was it's like somebody else did basically that and i couldn't think of it which again very likely borrowed from this maybe you know it feels like that sort of thing probably yeah because again, he's just this facsimile who doesn't realize he is. Yeah, um, yeah. So the the crazy old man is like he sees Pernot more or less for what he is. He's like, "Do you even exist? You're like, you're not real. There, there's nothing to you." But um, Pernot is also willing to give him the money to get the book back. So he sort of it, it sort of turns him around on the concept. And he, mm-hmm. he decides he wants to help Pernat. Yeah, yeah. Um, first, he takes him to the, the theater with the extra porno and super porno. <laughs> Hell yeah, turbo porno. Turbo porno. Uh, he calls it a church, though. 
Yeah, well, it's uh, this is what a church is now. Oh, fuck me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it would be. <laughs> yeah, like it, it's it's interesting that it sort of unravels its dystopia in a very surreal sort of way. It's it's all very representational, and the 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 just slow reveal of everything sort of being in total disrepair. Like everything is sort of culturally and socially at, at just a total bottom rung. There's really no sort of society left, and then you you get all of that and then you get to the rock bottom where you just come back and also just everything is physically destroyed <laughs> yeah yeah after seeing what appears to be himself in the theater uh basically it, it's it's a movie about a golem i think right. yeah uh, I think it's so. just kind of like peeling off the clay that in that's encasing his face I couldn't really tell because of how it was shot, but I think it's him in the movie screen. I think so. Yes. That's, that was my understanding. Yeah. And the voiceover saying like, your mission is happiness and, right. and stuff like that. It, it sort of feels like the old man or uh, Miriam's father has taken him to this place to sort of, because he knows that it plays this instruction of how uh, he's made. Uh, and it's, it's sort of to, make him see himself because mm. it does seem like all the whole rest of the movie he's working to make him try to understand himself better yeah and and Bernard, poor guy just yeah he isn't having it he can't yeah it's it's not, not within his programming to, yeah. yeah yeah so yeah this this movie makes him freak out and he goes and hides in the bathroom uh which is a contender for worst bathroom in cinema it's gross. It's pretty nasty. I mean, I don't think it's as bad as the worst toilet in Scotland, but it's no, gross. No, but it, it's pretty bad. Uh, and he uh, takes his face off. Well, yeah, he starts peeling away at his face, just like the one in the guy in the movie. And he yep. realizes that there is sort of this extra film on him, which is really gross. Yeah, really gross. All while being chased by this terrifying, like, lunch lady Doris in the lab coat. Like, you're puking in the bathroom? You can't oh, puke right. here. Right, because he has this fucking... Uh, it, it, it is an existential horror at what he is realizing about himself and that he can peel his skin off. So he's throwing up and he's like throwing up and he's horrified and his skin's coming off and this lady's shrieking at him. He's like, I'll clean it up. I'm sorry. I don't understand what's happening with me right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like... Prior to him going in there, somebody had turned on all the faucets in the bathroom. The place is flooded. <laughs> and she is so mad. Yeah, and of course she thinks it's him. And he's like, oh, don't clean it up. Just let me finish having my existential crisis. I, I assume that this is the lady in the credits as toilet grandma. Oh, it must be. Right? Oh, I, I couldn't think of who that would be, but <laughs> it must be her. Yeah. So... The next time Pernat is cognizant of his surroundings, uh, an unknown amount of time after this, he's just walking down the road, and this is where we first meet Holtram. Right. Shouts at him off the screen, hey, Pernat, help me move this oven. All right, he's he's up on the back of a truck with this big cast iron oven, which, you know, it, it becomes the thing that the guy is, that he thinks is the secret oven that I mean, presumably it is a, an it, oven that he's using to create a personal army, maybe. 
maybe. Um, it, it's not clear what Holtram's doing. He's got There's something some... sinister. Oh, he, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he's got. Uh, uh, what's what's the line? I, I have my fingers in many sinister pies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he does, though. He and does. Many sinister pickle jars. Yeah. So as they're dragging this heavy-ass oven across the courtyard, uh, Pernat is getting shouted down by Holtram's son for like, how can you help my father? He's an evil man. It's, it's just... Right, it's his whole, I warned you about him. This is what I was saying before. Didn't I tell you how he murders and he's evil and he, you know, destroyed my life? I didn't even know who you were talking about, brother. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and meanwhile, Holtrams is just like, hey, don't get distracted. Don't drop this thing. Fuck you. And and he gets uh, Rose, oh, fuck, Rosina Rosina. uh, to just, like, take him away. Get him out of here. Yeah, Rosina, please just just get rid of him. Good God. Yeah. So they finally get the oven into Holtram's apartment, and Pramod's just kind of standing there, not sure what happens next, and Holtram's like, the fuck else do you want? Get out of here. I told you to carry the thing for me. Now you're done. You have completed your task, Golem. Now leave. Yeah. What, do you think a thank you? Yeah. I, I, I do feel that Holtram is sort of in this weird negative space where he could have some connection with the people in charge because we know he is probably creating golems himself so in that sense he's again i don't he doesn't certainly seem to be counter-government or anything i don't think he's revolutionary no i think he's uh i think he's more like hey i can just carve myself out a bigger piece of the pie than what they want for me it could very well be yeah yeah they uh Holtram does give him his watch and he's like, You're going to fix this, you're going to learn how to fix it. They tell me you're good at fixing things. Well, yeah, so this both the the thing of him immediately just setting him to work on various things does kind of suggest to me that maybe he does have some sort of awareness of Pranat's nature as a golem or as a working thing. Yeah, I, I'm I was thinking like that they were all in on the experiments at first, but now I'm thinking it's more like a couple of people are. Some of them yeah. figured out what Pernat is, but aren't in on the overarching thing. Like the old man obviously knows what Pernat is. Yeah, and I think he knows. Right. I think the old man, Miriam's dad, he knows because he's an expert in it. It's something he's been studying and is totally obsessed with. Yeah. Whereas Holtram, it seems like he knows it because he knows people who know things. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. that's probably the case. Because I feel like he's not government, but he also doesn't really seem like he's anti-government. It seems like he would work in conjunction with them, but in a way that he's trying to, as you said, carve out a larger piece for himself. Yeah, he's he's basically he's basically a leech on society. Yeah, no, but the classical sort that uh, uh, half of the government tends to really like. Yeah. Oh, yes, for sure. <laughs> Definitely support. <laughs> Uh, uh, as he's not working, uh, he's working on uh the hanged man bronze thing. Yeah, and that's when the chimney sweep guy shows up. Yeah, he just like busts in the window. Yeah, from above, <laughs> and he's like, because well, hey, it I'm is here the to top fix- floor. Yeah, so he just like swings in off the roof. 
<laughs> yeah. And he's like, I'm here to fix your oven and your vents and all that. And Holtram, or not Holtram, uh, Pernat just is like, what? This oven? <laughs> and it's just this hilarious cut to this like dinky little ancient, like, easy bake oven looking thing it's teeny it's like smaller than my printer uh it, it's just this little thing it's like no no i mean the big oven that's been pumping out all the smoke that keeps this whole building hot he's like well i mean you can see there's literally nothing else in this room there's no other rooms yeah there, there is no place where another room could be you're 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 off your gourd and the guy's like no, i don't think i am he's like no no i know things about stuff and he he uh, he ultimately goes back out the window, but he's it's like him rolling out there, pointing at him, winking. He's like, yeah, I know. I'm on you. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. <laughs> and Pranat again is just left like, how could I, I mean, I really don't even understand what's going on in my life anymore. Because <laughs> it's like this guy seems to think there are additional dimensions of the room that we're currently in that I can't be aware of. Like, this is a problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, the scientists do mention that somebody who is involved with Pernat and like helping, like kind of like acting as a proxy between them and him got in an accident. And I think it's the chimney sweep. Could be. Because he he ends up like falling out the window later on. Right, yeah. Going down the stairs, again, an untold amount of time. We don't know. It, yeah, who knows? It's made to look like it's an instinct, but God knows. Uh, he encounters Holtram, who with Rosina is carrying that big, huge oven up to the top floor. Right, you know, because that's where uh, yeah. our, our guy seems to think it belongs. Uh, and he's Holtram's thing that he's on about now is how apparently there are two Pernats according to the registry. And... Right. Because the original Pernat who actually lived there and was a real person is still on the register. So now other... that he's come back in as a false version of himself, he's had to re-register because he's been given a different ID. So now he's like, well, there's two Pernats. So, I mean, you got to deal with this other pranat now <laughs> I, I was half expecting him to be like oh, so now i gotta charge you both rent like i completely thought he was going to be like well i mean you gotta cover all the background for this other pranat and uh yeah you know you're gonna have Who's to been... start yeah <laughs> living here for 30 years you I mean, know he's delinquent <laughs> yeah someone's i i need the money though right and it's weird because they, he is aware that he's the same guy, but he is also aware that he can just directly exploit him. So he's just doing it to him. He, mm -hmm. He's boldly to his face doing it to him. <laughs> yeah, he he makes him. He's like he got a summons to go to the dentist, and he makes him sign for both Pernats because yeah. I'm not going. I'm not going to go track down the other one. Yeah, no, just you. So you gotta go to the dentist. But then him discovering that he's also the other Pranat allows him to go back to the police station and get his original coat back, because now he has the other ID. Mm -hmm. Although that takes a little bit, and like that's yeah. the right before the apocalypse, because suddenly the guy behind the counter is terrified of him. Uh yeah. Well, so he goes back to the he goes back to the doll shop. 
And this time it's like this old, old, old woman there. Right. And, uh, and Miriam just kind of slides out from behind him and he's like, Oh, I came here to see you. And she's like, Oh, do you have a doll to repair? And he's like, I want to take you away from this place. And she is really creeped out. Yeah. Well, like, there's, there's just something yeah. fucking weird about this guy. And like, now he's, he, wants- he is uncanny. Yeah, and now he wants to take her to a second location, and he's she's just like, no. Although no. It, she he does does manage to convince her because is it her that he wants to take to the cinema? Because it's Rosina he ultimately goes with, right? Or is it Miriam? It is Rosina that he goes to the okay. cinema with. It's here that he decides, like she uses the the excuse that she's got to work so that she doesn't have to go with him. So it's, uh, he decides to go ask Rosina instead, right? Yeah. Here, okay. yeah. Here, he's like, "Hey, I'll lend you the the money to buy the dad's book." Right. And the but, dad, uh, like, and this later makes the dad just sort of think he's wonderful and decides, like, "Okay, I'm going to devote the rest of my time to helping you. I'm giving you the book now that I've yeah. gotten it back." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah, she's kind of like, "Oh no, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that." And he basically puts the money in her pocket. Yeah, and she's like, "Okay, well, like, don't tell my dad you gave me this because he's, he's going to do something crazy. weird. Yeah. <laughs> he's weird and crazy, and you're weird and crazy, and I don't want you two to get together." Yeah, I feel like everything is heading towards some sort of dangerous turnover, uh, and I, it, it is the the money thing is interesting to me because I don't really know where that's coming from either. I kind of assume that that is just being provided to him as necessary because also he has no need for money. Yeah. He doesn't seem to eat or do anything. He just sort of exists to work, to produce work. Yeah. Is he being funded? Like uh, that's kind of the impression I got. I think they're just like providing money for him to do the things that he needs to do. Yeah, because you know Holtram ain't paying him. No. Holtram is probably <laughs> receiving payment from him. Probably, yeah. It's or like is here. like getting money on behalf of him through the program. And maybe that's why he understands what he is. Oh, that could be. You know, it's sort of, sort of like a dude who hires exclusively ex-cons and uses that as a way to exploit them. Mm-hmm. You know. He, uh, he's the type. Yeah, that sort of feels like maybe what he's doing. Yeah. So in Miriam's apartment, uh, the dad finds the money and is like, oh, you got the money for the book. Oh, did you sell your body for me? Oh, you sold your body for me, didn't you? It's So this, I think this is meant to be a direct play on uh, Dostoevsky. <laughs> there's oh. a, a thing in crime and punishment there's there's a really major scene in crime and punishment involved this where someone there, there's a whole thing about pressuring someone into selling their body and then thing about freaking out at someone for having done so even though it was something that they was were forcing them to do and just all of this drama about it and this feels like just sort of the lighter the the mirror universe parody is like oh you did it you you sold your body for me that's so you're so good you're such a good daughter i really appreciate that then just like i shut up it it was pernod pernod gave me the money (laughs) oh did you sleep with my daughter for the money no no i don't know if i even can have sex i I I wonder if he can i i feel like he's smooth like a ken doll down there 
<laughs> I, I bet he is. That's. I mean, that's just something that you don't need your workers to be distracted by. No, no, especially. Plus, I mean, if you give them reproductive organs, how are you going to control who gets to reproduce? Well, yeah, I mean, also, children can't really do a whole lot of work. No. <laughs> Actually, yeah, yeah. Skip the whole children thing. Just put some uh, put some golems in the easy bake oven, and yeah, you, you can mass you get produce them in, like, your workers. Get him in a few hours instead of eighteen years is way better. Yeah. yeah, that's that's why they say he's the new improved person. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he's like, okay, well, I'm going to buy the book and I'm going to show it to you. Uh, you need this book more than I do. In fact, it is a book that is only for you. Yeah, and pronounced like you. Yeah, it's about you. Pronounced like. I'm not interested in this. He's like, I don't, I don't feel good about this because you know it, it is very existentially disturbing to him like when he was shown the film and it made him throw up because it yeah. made him realize some very troubling things about himself mm -hmm. now it's time for the dentist appointment the uh <laughs> the state mandated free dental care right. hook me up with some state mandated free dental care holy shit i mean a lot of places kind of do have state mandated free dental care still uh, oh, I mean, I, Canada doesn't quite, which is kind of a drag, but you know, most places, you know, dental care is, you know, it's, oh, it's yeah. like free healthcare. It's just part well, of what you get. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it should be. I could use it. I could use it. Yeah, but you know, he's like, I don't know why I'm here. My teeth are fine. And the dentist's like, What the fuck are you doing here? Your teeth are fine. And he's like, That's <laughs> what I said. That's that's what I was talking about. Uh, he's like, well, eh, bureaucracy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So the dentist stuffs a bunch of tissue papers in Pernat's mouth. You know, Gollum myth. And th there's been a thing of papers being stuffed into people's mouths, and it's going to keep yeah. going. Yeah. And, and that is definitely a, a Gollum thing. It's sort of how you control the Gollums. You you put notes into its mouth. Uh, and the the other thing is, of course, you it's you're supposed to write something on the forehead, and then you erase one part of it. Oh, that's usually how you control a golem. Oh, interesting. Um, so the dentist starts doing an eye exam on him. He's like, "Oh, you've got cataracts. Uh, time for anesthetic." And Pernat goes under, and he—we just see like a split second of it of just like his eye in like a red filter, and just a split second of him screaming. Mm -hmm. And then we just have like the screen goes black and we just hear someone and I think it's the old man, but I'm not sure. Just saying, eat, eat, you've got to eat, you've got to eat. Oh, I want to go home. You've got to eat. And just like several minutes of just black screen and these guys talking. Right. So uh, you, Miriam's dad, most likely. Yeah, the that's, that's yeah. who I'm thinking it is. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I believe so. Because he seems to be now that he bought back the book and stuff. He's very interested in uh, Pernat's well-being and is sort of interested to see him evolve. Mm -hmm. uh, so when he wakes up from the dream, he's in his apartment and Holtram is in his apartment giving him shit because he hasn't fixed the watch yet. Right. And, and also this is where he has the thing about where he destroys the seeds, right? Yeah, he destroys the seeds. He's got like these other like poison pellets that Pernat was apparently supposed to scatter on the roof to kill pigeons. And he's like, man, you didn't do that. You didn't do this. You didn't do anything. Now you just 
Now, here's the poison. Make sure you wear gloves because it'll destroy anything he touches if he just opens the bag up over Pernat's seeds. And just pours them all down and he goes, whoops. Yeah, he gets As if it were an accident. (laughs) Yeah. The most, like, fake, oh, oh, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. You're like, oh, whoops. Anyway. Anyway, do all that work. Yeah, Yeah. go, go do that work for me. And it's around here that the apocalypse happens, right? Somewhere around here. Is it before or after the ascent to the cinema? I think it's going to be after, but I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. Uh, Oh, uh, the the big thing here is Holtram demands Pernat's ID, and he, he starts taking his measurements very forcefully. Right. Like he's like falls him out of the chair, like forcefully lifts his arms up and starts with the measuring tape. It's like, oh, no, I just think he got good measurements. That's all. I just want to see what they are. Well, I mean, he he knows he is an object and he treats him as an object. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the thing that the thing that Holt re- reminded me most of is a retail customer. Yeah. <laughs> like, like just, well, there's no price tag on you, Pernat. I guess that means you're free. <laughs> <laughs> working hard or hardly working, Pernat. Yeah, he's one of those guys. Uh, he rejects he rejects the gift of the book from the old man uh, because he's like, I don't want it. There's nothing in here for me. How could it be? How could there be a book that's just for me? And the old man's like, No, it's for you. And it's around here that he asks Rosina to the movie. Right. So they they have this long and she's very excited about it because the cinema is this sort of almost mythical experience in this sort of post-apocalyptic world. And it, it seems like maybe it's weird that he even has access to such a thing. Uh, kind of. It, 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 it's it's not like just the way that it comes out and them going up this endless escalator and it just getting more and more deteriorated as they go up. Or yeah, actually, she... It seems at first it's getting brighter and brighter and then it you know, there's the switch, and then she disappears, and then things are fucked up. Yeah, yeah. Like, she goes on this big, long rant about how Holtram wanted to create, like, the perfect person, and thinks that you're pretty much it, Pranat. That's why he really likes you. He actually hates her gut, but he hates her guts, but he likes your body, and he wishes he looked like you, and she's just going off and it's like, do you like me? I'm a defective son, or I'm a defective daughter. My brother's a defective son. Do you like me? Well, yeah, it, he, I mean, this sort of suggests that perhaps Holtram is one of the people who was involved with uh, Pernat's creation, in which sense he is kind of a sibling to her and one of whom she is jealous because he doesn't like the son at all. He doesn't like the daughter at all. Uh, he kind of likes Pernat. I mean, he doesn't like Pernat as a person, but yeah, no. <laughs> he's, he's happy with the way Pernat turned out in terms of what he is. Yeah, yeah. And they get to the top, and there's this rock show happening, huge crowds, killer music, and the lights come up, and oh, the crowds were just, it was basically a green screen. Yeah, it was all fake, and there's like a few people doing, uh, it's it's like they're filming a commercial or something. Yeah, at the top of this like extremely long escalator that I have no sense of where anything is in relation to anything else, this whole 
the entire setting of the movie seems like a like a nightmare scape, like they're in hell. Well, it definitely seems like a a non-realistic landscape. Just at the the endless escalator up to a stadium which is gigantic. I mean, they would have had to have been living in some sort of subterranean world, but we see them out in the day all the time, so it's yeah. really fit. Uh, <laughs> but you know, it, also she's disappeared. He's asking about her, and they're like, "What the hell are you talking about? I never saw any lady." Yeah, we're 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 in the middle of something here, guy. Get out of here. How did you even get here? Yeah, who who the hell are you? So he's kicked out and I think he runs into the brother again? Uh not the brother. This is a new character. Oh, it's a nude person. Uh, yeah, this this guy I don't know what his deal is, but he's got like this hard hat. It's like and he seems to be passed out drunk at the bottom of the escalator. Right. Although he's faking it, <laughs> but he's like, "Can you please give me my hat back?" And right, they they trade hats or something, isn't it? Yeah, he gives the guy the guy's like, "Who would Do I they be trade without my hat?" Coats. Um. Oh shoot! I no, remember. I don't think this guy trades. Co- I think it's a different guy. Oh, that's a different guy. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's the shadow guy later on who trades oh, coats with him. It's the shadow guy. Okay, okay. Yeah, this guy. No, this guy's just. He's like, I need my hat. If without my hat, I'm not anybody. I don't exist. What would I be without my hard hat? And Pernet's like, Do you need a hat to exist? Hmm. Because <laughs> yeah, okay. Pernet's just been going off like, I don't, I don't exist without my ID. Maybe it's the same for this guy. He needs a hat in order to exist. Yeah, everybody needs something different. Mm-hmm. So, so he asks about the girl with red hair, Rosina, and she's like, "Red hair, but you're bald." <laughs> As Pernat, like, frustratedly, angrily, and or frighteningly, who knows, walks away from this cackling lunatic. He's just like, "Okay, I'm not going to get anything here. This is not <laughs> a person who can communicate information." Yeah, and the guy just. Puts the hard hat back for the next guy to see if he'll help him. Mm-hmm. Like it, Again, it feels like a test, like a control. You know yeah. how in Blade Runner when, uh, or Blade Runner 2049, when uh, uh, Gosling goes back to his thing and there's this series of questions he has to respond to to make sure he's properly calibrated. It feels like something along those lines. Why aren't you helping the turtle? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, I really like this scene in Miriam's apartment. It's just like this complete pink featureless square room. But for whatever reason, they're, they feel they're animated in stop motion. Mm-hmm. While Miriam's basically talking about how her mom was supposed to marry Holtram, but it didn't work out. Holtram used to be different somehow. Maybe Holtram is also some sort of facsimile, but he's like the primary facsimile. Could be. Master uh, replicator. Yeah. Uh, Pernat is still doing his whole thing like, hey, you, I need to take you away from all this. Mm-hmm. Well, it, though, it's like, weird. He has some sort of, it, it's this impulse that he can't really find the bottom of. It, it, it doesn't yeah. really refer to anything. It just seems to be the impulse to save her that he can't. Like it suggests that maybe the original Pernat maybe had some sort of love for her. It's possible, and 
it, it kind of feels like this per not is maybe trying to explore that. Um, Without any real knowledge of how to do so. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it does feel like he clearly doesn't have a plan for if she says yes, like away from here to where. Pranat doesn't have anything set up. Pranat wasn't able to go to the cinema. Pranat just, uh, it, you know, it, it became an endless loop yeah. uh, that is, is, was not possible for him to uh, go through. Uh, and yeah. I, like in terms of the stop motion stuff, I kind of feel like that's underlining that he is an object, that you know, he's a... Made uh, of oh claymation, yeah, yeah. me, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I I just like that. Like there are no decorations of any kind anywhere in this universe. Like her room, it's just a pink square with nothing in it, and that's her room. Well, and his is just like it looks burnt out. Yeah, uh, it looks like there's a fire there, and everything's just destroyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's it, before the apocalypse. Right. The just it's extremely brutalist. Everything is super brutalist. There is no ornamentation. There is no entertainment. Uh like you you really just have like which is why the cinema is such this mythical thing, uh, that she's like, oh, I you know never been to such a thing. It's gonna be glorious. Mm-hmm. Because there's only sex work. There's only uh the art ordained by the state like you <laughs> if you're a rich person you can hire someone to do a brass etching but you know most people aren't going to be able to do that sort of thing yeah yeah uh, we got to the scientists and like one of the big boss scientists like all right that's it shut the whole project down it's over and they're like well what are we going to do about per nut eh, just leave him there it's not our problem anymore yeah it's his own problem now he's out in the he's in the system so the system can deal with him. He'll yeah. do his work. <laughs> yep. <laughs> he'll do his work. He'll he'll work. That that's good enough. And uh, I guess this is essentially where the apocalypse takes place. Right? Because I think he goes back to the police station and has that interaction with the guy, like the, the cloakroom guy. Yeah, yeah. Um he well, he does get his original cloak coat back from the shadow guy. Right. And then he finds Holtram dead, and then he goes back to the police station. Right, and that's where he goes to talk to the warehouse man. Again. Oh shoot! No, we skipped where he ta- he went to talk to the warehouse man the second time. Okay. Uh, yeah he he was trying to get back his ID, and the guy's like, "Well, oh no, no, wait! That happens afterwards when he gets out of jail, because now they think he killed Holtram, and he probably did." Yeah, I think he absolutely did. And he was maybe programmed to do so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at some point, the homeless man had given him, Holtram's son had given him a bottle of Holtram's blood. He's like, Oh, yeah, that was it, weird. It's actually my blood. It runs through my my veins, but he gave it to me and I don't want it, so give it back to him. It feels like the most bizarre and elaborate faked death like it, it feels like he's been framed in this really stupidly elaborate way that because you know he's given the blood and then he has to do the thing and he's supposed to kill the guy and he then he just happens to be in the same place and he's the one who's there with the body and he has the blood on her and he looks completely ridiculous and they think he killed him <laughs> to drain just this tiny little bit of blood and that's what they're accusing him of and it it's this they've gone to such a bizarre extent to frame him when 
he kind of <laughs> like it seems like maybe he's doing it for them but it's sort of just it seems like a way to bring him in anyways yeah yeah the cop at this point is he's talked to the guy a few times now and he is tired of her not shit he's like you know how bad this looks you've got his watch in your pocket you've got his blood in a bottle and his your chisel is sticking out of his neck and like why even i don't even understand and uh pronounce like well i don't either really i i, <laughs> I don't fall in any of it and the cop is just like reasonably exhausted by all this and yeah he ultimately has to let him go because the guy's just got nothing it's it's very weird there's there's I, I don't know what exactly happens but i think the apocalypse happens in here the apocalypse seems to happen here because the next time we see Pranat, he's in a cell. Yeah. And there's this other guy going into this cell. He's like, oh, I sure am in a cell on death row. I'm going to die soon. Yeah. This, like, cheerful... Yeah, he's jazzed about it. He's pretty happy. Yeah, he's like, I did sexual crimes. Want to hear about the one I did to Miriam? Right. And he goes into detail about raping Miriam. Hmm. Which, uh, you know, Pranat, we don't really see what happens next. But then we have Pranat, uh, now he's talking to the guy at the at the police uh, evidence locker or whatever it is. And he's become scary. Yeah, like there, there's yeah. something about him. He he has a menace to him now. And like he, he strides into the, uh, the, the back room with ease. He like throws open the door. He is not hit by it. You know, he's yep. learned how to avoid it and he knows the procedure. And then suddenly the guy becomes terrified of him. Yeah. Yeah. The guy's like, okay, well, so I remember you from last time because it was one time where our system did screw up. So uh, I did give you the wrong coat last time. It's like, can I have the right coat now? Mm -hmm. No, but you can have this one. You can have the one that goes with the thing because the other one has it's gone. It's been it's gone out to someone else. Uh and then yeah, he he's terrified by him all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Uh as he's going through the courtyard, here's where we see the windows have all shattered. There there's right. no windows, just empty window frames. But we hear the clunk of the windows closing. Right. Yeah. I mean it's still the same place but it's been destroyed uh even though it we're we're still kind of receiving the same stimulus in a weird sort of way like it still does the same shot where it suggests they should all still be doing it but it it's just all shattered windows Mm -hmm. and there's just like people in the streets it seems like things have gone wrong there's a collective sense of uh everything in downfall yeah there's just like so much there's so much more garbage in the streets than there was before. And just like rubble. Yeah, rubble. Um, he goes into his place and he steps over. Here's the thing. I can't tell if this is Rosina or Miriam because it's a girl with like really smeared makeup whose hair is red and blonde and playing with dolls. Yeah, and I think it's supposed to kind of represent both of them in a weird sort of way. Yeah, they are clearly clearly messed up now if they weren't before Mm -hmm. and it's like oh these dolls are my friends and pranat just crushes the skull of one of them and she's like oh don't do that they're my friends don't do that Mm -hmm. Uh, he gets up to the top floor 
to see that his place, uh, I mean, you can't really tell, but it looks like it's been ransacked. Yeah, the, the uh, few little few possessions he has have been like turned over. Yeah, like like his the oven is on its side now. Yeah. Um. Oh, and there's these white like laboratory mice crawling over everything. Mm. Across the hall from him, where the shadow guy was hanging out, he sees this like light coming through where the wall has been boarded up, and he picks it in and. Here's where we see that giant oven that the chimney sweep was looking for. Right, the the secret oven that was actually hidden on his floor in the Shadow Man's area. Yeah, so still doesn't conclusively answer who the Shadow Man is, but I think it's another Pernat clone. Yeah, most likely. And I do think Holtram is, like, Holtram is behind the oven. And that it uh-huh. was sort of his project, and that's why he's more or less aware of Pranat, because he has other Pranats. Yeah. Uh, Pranat opens this oven, and there is a, what I thought was a charred corpse, but it's actually just another golem who hasn't scraped off all the dried-on clay yet. Yeah, he's incomplete. It's it's and... it's a real invasion of the body snatchers type moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he, like, springs to life when Pernat puts his coat check tag in the guy's mouth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then uh, <laughs> we have the sound of the marching band, and Pernat goes to join them. Uh, the marching band has been, like, kind of recurring in the background throughout the whole thing. Just, it's not really clear what they're practicing for, because it seems like the only part of the world that anyone has access to is this one courtyard. Yeah, and it's it's very condensed. The the whole thing is really abstract. So what we see is just a very limited space, but that's also because Pernat's work area is very limited. He doesn't have any hobbies and mm-hmm. his work is situated in his home. He works from home. So there's no need for any world beyond those spaces and the police station. Yeah. Yeah, um it actually fades to black as he's following the marching band and just goes around the corner. Yeah. For maybe the first time in his life. Mm-hmm. He, he's going to explore new territory. Uh, he's sort of been freed from whatever his programming is because it kind of seems like the people at the top don't exist anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we do get, we do get a, a uh, credits sequence of this politician looking guy talking about how the plan to create super artificial humans and all that and replace all of you is all nonsense. We are not doing that at all. Trust in your government. But he's yeah. got the coat ticket in his hand. Yeah. That was the guy. He was the guy. And I have to assume that this is like flashback to before whatever ended the world. It seems like this per not thing, the the pernot proliferation has destroyed society some way that is beyond this particular pernot. Hmm. See, I I had interpreted it as this guy rising from the ashes of the apocalypse that happened, uh, but he is also a pernot or Maybe even he is Holtram in the body of this golem that he created that's accidentally revived by Pernot. 
There's so many things it could be. Yeah, I'm not really sure what to make of the new Gollum. I, I just mean like, or not in in terms of breaking his programming at the end, mm. uh, it, it, uh, and who he is or what he is is sort of. I mean, it doesn't matter, I guess, but I, in terms of not this specific one, but the Pernots, like the the proliferation of these AI golem people who don't exist and are facsimiles as worker drones, I kind of feel like their creation is what caused whatever this apocalypse is to take place. It's just we don't know enough about what it actually is or how it happened. I kind of love that it just happens in the background and only gets mentioned in a couple of lines that you have to really be listening to even hear. Yeah, I mean, it's really mostly just the symbolic changeover of the mirror or the windows all being broken. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh, the world is ended, but <laughs> it's it's sort of just a vibe still. Yeah, yeah like the world's mm-hmm. ended, but it's kind of a boot point for the people in this particular slum. Well, it seems like like it's a moot point in that the world maybe kind of ended in any value sense some time ago, and it's just sort of petering out its authoritarian regime. Mm. It it does appear to take place in like an alternate universe where like the atomic bombs and stuff were completed or atomic something in 1941. Right. Right. yeah, which of course, as we know, is way before the atomic bombs were completed. Which suggests maybe someone else did it first. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but... I, I guess arguably we would have to say it's probably supposed to be Soviet because this is Czech or no, Polish. This is a uh, Polish movie. So, and it's it's post Poland being part of the Soviet Union, I think. God, I don't know. 1980 oh man i don't know enough about that part of the world at that time of history because i don't know how many like a lot of places left the soviet union before it collapsed and in the end of the 80s but i'm not sure which ones did so i'm not clear on that anyway i i would kind of have to assume that it's the soviets got uh, like russia got the bomb in 41 first because there were a bunch of superpowers racing to get it at the time oh oh yeah yeah like well they they all were yeah (laughs) yeah it was it was this whole it was a huge thing yeah i mean this is going to be a thing that everybody's pretty aware of because oppenheimer is going to be one of those big movies this summer it looks like and everybody's talking about this stuff so yeah yeah so great movie uh it's it's a vibes movie that weirdly kind of reminds me of two orphan vampires in a way it's got just kind of yeah i i definitely see the same kind of weird blank energy where you are left to fill in a lot of the blanks yourself because the characters are not reliable and they also don't seem to know a lot or they're they're a weird version of themselves Mm-hmm. Like the 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 two orphan vampires themselves also feel like they've been reborn so many times they've kind of lost their original value as goddesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. All in all, definitely recommend. Uh, stunning visuals, really, mm-hmm. really dark and oppressive. Really, very striking. Uh, and and again, mm-hmm. like Terry Gilliam's Brazil and Twelve Monkeys, I feel like a lot of their look and style. Uh, was inspired by this movie or, or feels very adjacent to it mm-hmm. yeah um yeah i i liked it i liked it a lot 
It rocks. Uh, so any last thoughts on Golem before we move on to our third and final section? I don't have the answers. I don't know what answers you want me to give. I don't have last thoughts. Uh, I'm sure you know. Tell me everything <laughs> you know. Damn it, why don't you know anything? I'm so frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> you were literally watching it. <laughs> no, but I wasn't paying attention, you see. How do you not know that they put the homing device in the flower? Turn out, <laughs> you fool. All right. <laughs> uh, on to part three. And we're back for our third and final section where we're talking about all the other movies we've watched on physical media in the past week and uh, decide what we're going to cover next week. All right. We've Please. we did a few together on this one. Yeah, there's a couple that uh, you can chime in on. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, one where uh, you'll have to take the lead because I missed about half of it. Oh, <laughs> you know, the one. Oh, uh, oh right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, but first, we've got Dreams Don't Die, first film in the Fun City Editions Primetime Panic TV Movies box. Oh. So it's kind of, you know, Primetime Panic, it's kind of after school special sort of thing, but, you know, a little bit more primetime. You know, it's it's not three o'clock, it's five o'clock, you know? Right, right. Your, your movie of the week that's about uh, a hinge teen subject so kids are dying their hair now <laughs> oh no uh this one is about graffiti this is uh the uh the big graffiti era of new york it's uh pretty compelling for just it actually documents a lot of real graffiti uh of the era the graffiti that our main character creates is done by one of the real major graffiti artists of the time dondi Oh, okay. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, and I, you got, please. I know we, we did, I delved a little bit into the New York graffiti, maybe not the scene, but certainly the results with the, uh, what is it? Stations of the Elevated, was it called? Stations of the Elevated is wonderful. Yeah. Uh, this is before that, I think, or maybe around okay. the same time, because this one's interesting because it beats there. There's a couple really major graffiti movies that came out in the eighties. And I think this one comes out before either of them, uh, oh. beat street and wild style, which are both pretty good. Okay. Uh, anyway, this one, it's this kid who's a graffiti artist and he's got this girlfriend, like both of them are orphans. They live in an orphanage. Right. And they're kind of getting close to aging out and she's thinking about her future and how she would like to get out of the inner city. And he just wants to, he's kind of the top graffiti artist of the area. So he feels he's the king of the line. Oh, <laughs> so he's not really all that jazzed about getting out of town. And uh, there's this other, uh, a 15 year old, uh he's like a pimp and a drug dealer and he's like 15 year old <laughs> drug kingpin who rides around <laughs> chauffeured in his car and he you know, he looks younger than any of them and he, he kind of is sweet on the girl and he gets her to you know he, he sort of tries to get her into drug dealing because you know as uh minors they you know they're not old enough to be charged as adults. So right. you know, they, they can kind of get away with it until they turn 16. 
and he's like getting near that age so he's trying to uh get some last big deals uh before he's old enough to be charged are these kids white uh he is not oh okay the reason i ask is because they can still get shot yeah, they most certainly can still get shot, but yes, the other two are like the the two main kids are white, and he is Hispanic. Uh, our, oh, okay. Our uh, drug kingpin kid. All <laughs> uh, right, so that's why that's why he needs these two white kids. Yeah, exactly. And he doesn't he, like he's the the other kid, the the graffiti kid, is against him, and he's he's really not into the girl getting into crime. Uh, you know, he's worried about her because she's his girlfriend. Right, right. Uh, and then uh, he gets involved with this uh, good local police, you know, a, a classic beat cop, pre-militarization, uh, you know, before the broken windows policing era of New York. Mm. So he, you know, he's against the graffiti because the graffiti makes it hard for him to see perps on the train because the windows are all covered up. It's like, look, I don't care that you do graffiti and he kind of connects him with he starts to try to connect him with people to turn his art into something legit and he like there there's a whole thing where he takes the two of them to manhattan to uh the museum of modern art and gets shows them a bunch of actual modern art and shows them that you know that's his conception of what commercial art is is antiquated and the graffiti is not that edgy as he thinks he is <laughs> <laughs> all right <laughs> uh, uh uh what's his name uh winfield uh paul winfield is uh the the cop and he's definitely the highlight of the movie okay uh you'd know him as uh the cop like the 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 main cop in the original terminator Oh, okay. Um, oh, I he was Terrell in a while. Terrell in Wrath of Khan, the the other Which captain. Was... Oh, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, that guy. Tons of stuff. Yeah, Paul Winfield, who's awesome. Uh, he, uh, so he's or he's he's the cop that uh, they they like, and yeah, I don't know. It's it's very TV movie. There, there's a point where it's like, uh oh, uh. Oh, Winfield is definitely going to get shot the minute he closes that door <laughs> <laughs> sort of thing uh, you know it was, it was decent good production value for being a TV movie but it's cool that they actually have a nuanced view on graffiti that's interesting because that wasn't a thing in a lot of the 80s no no very much not <laughs> any teen fun is bad Right, and like New York is the epicenter of that too. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. Yeah. Next, uh, from the Ormond box, the worst one yet. Girl oh. from Tobacco Row. <laughs> this wow. Yeah. It's <laughs> so you know how in White Lightning Road, there's a very small proportion of plot considering what it feels like there should be. Yeah, I mean, the description of the plot takes more time to talk about than the plot takes to happen. This is kind of like that. It's just instead of car and road, which is pretty compelling and just straight up <laughs> production value, uh, it's church sermon and singing. <laughs> oh, 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 a lot of no. church. So much church. Uh, oh, is this where they start going Christian? No. Oh. <laughs> Oddly enough, not yet. There's okay. one big blowout in between. 
But the All thing right. is, I feel like the Christian was always there. It's just the uh, the plane crash cemented it. Because mm. uh, Ormond was involved in a plane crash and he survived. And from that point on, he's like born again. I think he's oh. always pretty Christian. Right, but like, he found like, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Like you, you definitely feel it in some of the other ones. It's just he stops doing the exploitation-y stuff around the edges i guess uh, okay or it become it it turns mutant it, it becomes <laughs> christ exploitation in a very strange way oh boy <laughs> so girl from tobacco row uh it seems like it's gonna a sequel to white light and road at the beginning <laughs> uh you got snake uh, on okay, a chain gang yeah. right he, he's, he's just he's in jail and uh, there's this guy with him who's going to escape, and uh, he ends up getting shot, and then there's a whole uprising, and then he ends up having to escape. He's on the run. Okay, cool. And he ends up on this farm on Tobacco Row, which is, yeah, uh, you know, they're all tobacco growers, but they're pretty impoverished, you know, right, low-income right. area. And this girl, he runs into her, and she takes him in because she wants to help him out. Okay. And he's sweet on her. And it seems like, you know, we got this whole fugitive story. Uh, you know, in the first couple minutes, we see someone get gunned down. We see a prison break. And we, eh, you know, we're doing stuff. And then we don't anymore. <laughs> <laughs> She's, she, her dad is a reverend. And oh. it's like. There's so many points in the movie where it seems like something is going to happen. Like there people get in an argument and they're starting to get into a fight. And then someone will just like start playing the fiddle and it'll turn into a song and just the fight dissipates. And <laughs> then, you know, he keeps taking him to church and, you know, we, we sit through all these church services and sermons and I'm like, whew, I thought this was going to be a crime movie at some point. And, you know, you, you've, it finally does have a little bit, again, at the end where, you know, people get gunned down because it's an Ormond's exploitation movie. But, you know, 90% of it is like church sermon and oh like people like playing, uh, you know, folk music or country music. <laughs> and like, oh, it, it was it was a drudge. Sounds like it. I... <laughs> It, this is one of those ones where if I hadn't seen White Lightning Road, I wouldn't believe you. But now yeah. I, I kind of I can kind of imagine this in my head now, and I think imagining it's enough. <laughs> I mean, it, it might be one where like we'll do a second entry on the Ormonds, and you could just like do a watch through of these oh, other yeah. ones, and then like I, you'll get it, you'll get the idea real fast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I definitely want to do that, but yeah, yeah, but probably not quite yet. <laughs> the, no, these first not. two don't give us much material <laughs> uh next is the one that i was of course out of the room for a significant proportion of because i was uh cooking but uh you know caught the end of and i've seen many times before sherlock jr buster keaton um yeah this is this is a fun one uh he he takes up mystery solving in his spare time while he has a real day job of, I can't remember what it is. Movie projectionist. Right. Movie projectionist, of course. Yes. That's it. Pretty key. Um, yeah. Very key, actually, because that's where he falls asleep and has the dream mm -hmm. that about half of the movie is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So he, he's sweet on this girl and he buys her. He, he does all this work for the movie theater 
<laughs> there's this hilarious bit where he sweeps up all the trash and all and like he finds all this money in there, but everyone's all like, "Oh, I lost a dollar bill in the trash." Yeah. And... Continuously escalating amounts, and then <laughs> like finally, this one guy comes and he has just this huge wad of bills. <laughs> Great <laughs> yeah. escalation. Uh, yeah, so he's he he wants to buy sweets for his girl, but he he had three dollars, and now he only has one dollar, so he buys. The cheap one dollar box which <laughs> right, marks line it, on it to the four dollars, <laughs> which is going to incriminate him because the other guy bought the actual four dollar candy, which is just this ridiculously bigger box. But he bought it with ill gotten proceeds from stealing her father's watch. Yeah, uh, so which he know. pawned off for four bucks. Yeah, and <laughs> I mean, it's such an easy paper trail to follow. I really my oh, my, yeah. my favorite element of it is definitely how. You know, he gets thrown out of the house and he's not allowed to see the girl ever again. But then the girl just goes to the pawn shop and solves the crime in like <laughs> one minute. And, you know, Buster just goes to work and falls asleep and dreams about solving the case. But in the meantime, his girlfriend actually did it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. He, he's got like this whole dream where he's traveling like from one end of the country to the other to catch this dastard who has like this whole criminal organization and he's got like this ghoul henchman. It's great. Uh, I love the, the dream. I like I love just him walking into the screen and then the series of scene changes and those incredible synchronized gags that they did. Oh, yeah. Um the, when he's in the movie theater and or in the screen that is hmm. and yeah it just keeps changing the background but he is in the exact same position i gotta wonder how they did that I mean, they took a lot of time he had his own studio so he got to really take the time to make things right i guess oh and, and when he gets his assistant with the like the costume changes that briefcase oh, yeah. stunt Oh, that one is amazing. But both the briefcase stunts, the one where he has the dress outside the window. Yeah, he, he dives does... through the window into the dress. Yeah, he, he does like the Looney Tunes thing uh, where like you dive into a dress and then suddenly you're just wearing it. He does and, it twice. Because it's in a bag that like and it's sealed up like flat and he just dives through the window and he just is in a dress walking away as a woman. No one notices. And then yep. the even more amazing one where, of course, his uh, assistant has the briefcase open and he dives into the briefcase and just vanishes. I don't understand how they did that. <laughs> Incredible. It's so I, good. I, I, it, that one boggles my mind. I, I, I'm sure I could look it up because I'm sure hmm. the information is out there, but I want to figure it out. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it's just so good. There's so many incredible feats of stunt work in this and just the the propulsion of it. Like, there's no wasted moments. Everything is funny. Mm -hmm. At the end, he's, like, trying to win the girl over in the projection thing, and he just keeps, like, staring at the movie theater to see what they do next. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And they, they're staring back at him. Yeah, it's an interesting sort of like back and forth, fourth wall break. Uh, and of course, just, you know, the the topper gag about having a bunch of kids. I'm like, oh, oh, my, oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I, in my opinion, his masterpiece. Probably, it's the best one I've seen. Yeah. 
and next, another one that we both watched, uh, the second Stray Cat Rock film, Wild Jumbo. So I picked this film with the intent to introduce our friends to Meiko Kaji, and I think I picked the worst film to do that with. Yeah, there's very little Mako in this one. This it's uh, I think maybe she was more involved in Sex Hunter, which filmed at the same time. They were making oh. both of them simultaneously. Oh, that yeah. makes sense. Oh, <laughs> that that helps explain how they came out so fast. Yeah, they made two of them at the same time, <laughs> one after the other. So Wild Jumbo and Sex Hunter are made parallel. And Wild Jumbo, it's really off-model. We've established it's not really a girl gang movie in any degree. She's the only girl in the gang, and she doesn't have much to do. No, she her whole job is to be the girl of the gang. Yeah, and she's not even the most interesting girl in the gang. The person who joins later on is way more interesting. Which is weird because that's kind of what happens in the first one too. Yeah, but she was still cool in the first one. That's true. Yeah, she this one she just has nothing to do. And she wasn't even the she's not even a girl boss. And this one, it's weird because it feels like beach party. You know, they're they're again tooling around in a toy car. They got a dune buggy. They're playing <laughs> on the beach and they have like long playing on the beach sequences where they're mooning people and doing all the, this silly stuff. The plot doesn't even start to kick off until halfway through because ultimately it turns out they're trying to rip off a huge religious organization or cult and they get fucking all murder like it's a very bleak ending oh yeah like our friend described it as hilariously downer yeah it just it's a, a like a beach party movie where uh, you know at the end eric von zipper and crew all just like fucking drive off a cliff and explode <laughs> <laughs> Strange vibe. Uh, like, yeah. I, I don't like it as much as the first one, definitely. Mm-hmm. And it it definitely really feels far off model, like a completely different series. It's just, it has gangs and it has Mikokaji and it has Katsuya, but there's practically it, no relationship otherwise. Like, it's also not by Hasabe. Yeah. Oh, it's not. I believe Hasabe was directing the other one that was filming at the oh, same time. That yeah. explains a lot, too. Yeah. So if I were to choose this one, I would want to do this one and the next one. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, and I, I don't think there's to... enough in this. No, definitely not. And I, it would be one to just like sort of do a sidebar on because it's an interesting oddity, but it's a different series. Like it's just not, yeah. it, it, it's under the same name, but there's very little real relationship. Well, it does have uh, featuring Akiko Wada. Oh. Yeah, and it uh, has her song again. She has it's a glorified cameo. She has a one shot. <laughs> it, it is literally one, not even a scene. It is a yeah. shot that she is in. There's a shot that they... she's in. She has one line, and then later they reuse the same singing scene from the first movie. Wabo Angoo. Yeah. <laughs> Rocks. Awesome uh, song though. I don't I don't care. It, it does kick out. Put ass. that in yeah. all of them. Yeah. Yeah, featuring is doing a lot of heavy lifting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, definitely a step down, but like a, an entertaining movie, just oh, sure. totally a different type of movie. I, I didn't get any of what I was hoping for from it. Yeah. Uh, so next we've got Dracula, the Dirty Old Man. <laughs> this one's an interesting uh, artifact because... 
they shot this movie and I feel like they thought it was going to be scarier than it was. Oh, really? They made it and they, they were kind of looking for something that's going to be creepy. And then they finish it and they realize they made it really cheap and it looks silly. So they throw out the soundtrack and they get a couple comedians to do a new improvised soundtrack. Okay. So like, or Dracula, the dirty old man, he does a lot of narration. You know, I, I sent you a clip of just him babbling on and on over the opening sequence of them showing some hills. He's like, oh, and there's the hills, and look at all the hills, and they go up and down. And <laughs> kind of shit. So a lot of the time, there's just this endless stream of Dracula talking, and he's very... I've talked about this before, and I don't know if you have a lot of reference point for it, but Borscht Belt Jewish circuit comedy humor of the 60s. You have talked about it, and no, I don't have a lot of reference for it. Uh, it's it's a tough thing to explain. Like, I'm familiar with it mainly through other reference points, like Broadway Danny Rose and stuff, but uh, it's... <laughs> it's it's the the hackiest comedy imaginable like when you when someone does hacky comedy like oh i just flew in from blah 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 and boy am i on diet <laughs> oh no that kind of shit so it's someone doing sort of the shtickiest stuff but <laughs> it is still this sort of movie that was meant to be horrifying and also have a ton of nudity oh okay there is a lot of rape and nudity and murder (laughs) there's necrophilia like it's it's hard but it's also as it's happening our you know comedians are making weird jokes the whole time about what's happening but they're as the character's doing it oh fuck (laughs) so like it's it's dracula and he creates a wolfman to be like to procure women for him but right. uh, in you know I, I guess he was originally a wolfman but the costume obviously turned out looking very silly and in <laughs> the dub he's rechristened irving jackelman <laughs> uh, uh, I, I just saw in the descriptor he's dr jekyll yeah right yeah uh jekyll the jackalman jekyll the jackalman uh and so yeah there are scenes where he as a wolfman goes out and like savagely rips someone's throat out and then rapes the dead body but you know you'll have a comedian doing shtick about it he's like oh what's going on here he's like oh i'll give you a little kiss and then like he comes away and uh, the like oh looks like i kissed too hard again oh it's completely just brain fried nonsense it's very strange (laughs) uh and that shares a disc with tales of a salesman of course uh uh, (laughs) which is another weird sexploitation movie uh it uh the so the it it has a similar theme where it's got a lot of voiceover gags because it's this horny ghost or he specifically calls himself a poltergeist right and there's this guy he's a door-to-door brush salesman and his boss is just really riding his ass 
it feels like an instructional video for door-to-door salesmen at the beginning. And then <laughs> there's this horny poltergeist who's doing all this narrating and he's watching this guy and he's like, oh, I think I'll help this gentleman out because he's got a very, you know, 50s instructional film kind of voiceover voice. Oh, <laughs> And it's like the poltergeist going into all these houses and, you know, it's it's mid-60s horny housewives, right? Right, so he, of course. You know, every house he goes into, there's some lady involved in crazy debauchery. <laughs> uh, the weirdest thing is that there's this one lady who is banging a delivery guy who is the identical twin. Like, not like literally related to him, but just... An, an exact doppelganger for the brush salesman. Uh, okay. All right. <laughs> but uh, so the, like the gag is that he keeps bringing the guy in to sell his brushes and he just keeps wildly screwing it up because he's a total failure at everything. He's a completely <laughs> incompetent human being and the poltergeist just can't seem to get him to, uh, get through it and there's always just weird sex stuff going on around the fringes and uh the when he gets to the lady who had the version of him she's sort of weirded out by it but she has like this direct aversion to him although <laughs> she tries to have sex with him because the other guy runs off the the double of him runs off right <laughs> and then there's this whole weird kerfuffle between the two of them and then he runs off and then another him shows up there to bang her it's uh, my name is man incognito it's so fucking weird uh but yeah he just it he keeps blowing it he keeps blowing it and then he he seems just i don't know he goes to hell and he's like tried in court for <laughs> uh, like uh, they have all decided to accuse him of rape and he's his boss is the devil and it, <laughs> it, it, it oh, sounds fun it's it's a strange shit <laughs> next we got indiana jones and the kingdom of the crystal skull yeah i think we can just move <laughs> no <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I mean I tell speak... a poor audience about the crystal skull Speaking of, we were talking about Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project and everything. And obviously, you know, both of us have listened to the last podcast on the left, Manhattan Project series recently. I haven't finished. I'm not quite done. Okay. Uh, the, like, I, you know, the nuking the fridge that everybody gets uh-huh. all fucking up in arms about. I, I don't have any major issue with it. It's cartoony. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I have more of a problem you know him being in a lead-lined fridge i get it you know it's really sure. cheap junk science fine fine whatever it, that he bounces a bunch of times and is like launched on the shockwave i mean he should pour out of it as a liquid but <laughs> whatever whatever i don't care about that it's just while i do think the image of where he gets out of the fridge and there's just that mushroom cloud behind him and like indiana jones walking away from a mushroom cloud is an incredibly potent and striking image to signify that this is the post-war, Cold War, nuclear, mutant Indiana Jones era. I just don't... Right. It, it's just... The problem is, you know, I've just listened to all of the 
Manhattan Project stuff. I'm aware of all of the tests. I know of, you know, the actual impact of these bombs. And it really left a bad taste in my mouth seeing this. The way is treated at the start of the movie as a joke. It just like it really rubbed me the wrong way just as the start of the movie. Yeah. um, The atomic bomb as a symbol of heroism doesn't work for me. And I mean, it isn't even that. I mean, it's him getting away from it. But yeah, it just the way they deploy it almost as a a comedic slapstick element kind of grossed me out in in a really real sense. And it uh, put me on a bad foot for the rest of the movie. I mean, I don't like this movie to begin with. It's got problems. Obviously, Harrison Ford is sleepwalking through the thing. He's so uninterested. (laughs) Harrison, I don't want to be here, Ford. Harrison, part-time Ford. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's just he's he didn't show up. Uh, Shia LaBeouf showed up so much. Oh, you know, I like he's clearly given it everything. It's just the character is poorly conceived. Mutt, because he's you know he's the son of Indiana Jones. Wait, that's his. Yeah, is that his name? No, he's Henry. He's Henry Junior again. Right, right. He's Henry the Third. Right. Okay. But he chose Mutt, and Indiana Jones. Indiana is the dog's name, but he didn't have a dog, so he's just Mutt. I see. I guess. I guess it's it sucks. I don't like it. <laughs> it comes out, like it's just everything is bad. It's so badly written. It's a really bad script. Like I don't necessarily have any problem with the it's it's the logical continuation. If you're going to do an Indiana Jones movie now, Harrison Ford is older, so you can't set it in the 40s anymore. It has to be the 50s or 60s. And if you're going to do that, Obviously, it's the Cold War and the Russians are the bad guys, but you can't treat it the same way as you treat the Nazis because it's just not the same philosophy. The answer is like the answer is secret Nazis. Yeah, uh, I, I as I wrote in my review about it, it what it really made me come away feeling just because I had such a bad taste in my mouth about the atomic thing is that it reminded me of those 50s Captain America comics that were just him as an anti-communist. And, you know, when they revived Captain America in the modern day, by the 80s, they kind of had to revisit those and be like, that was a brainwashed white supremacist replacement Captain America who was an imposter. Uh, We're going to write all of those out of continuity. That was a bad guy who did that stuff. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It made me think of that. Like, it's not that indiana jones is racist in this one or anything it's just it has that sort of weird apocryphal like oh this is just a remake in a different era by someone who didn't quite i don't know like the the axe to grind just feels so uh incorrect to indiana jones that he's dealing with communists and that there's all this weird skullduggery involving spies still at this point he's looking for fucking alien skulls it's yeah oh yeah it's aliens the (laughs) only thing i remember about this really is like the i guess it's not a nazi lady i guess it's a communist lady gets zapped and they swing through vines like tarzan with a bunch of monkeys at one point that's that is shia labeouf who does that specifically that's for me the single 
low point of the movie uh just the point is like uh, we're really doing this oh my god that's <laughs> those are the only things i remember yeah uh i mean it's bad it's just it's it sucks uh i don't know like it, i do feel like a lot of people when i see people talking about it lately it's always oh that movie's really overhated or you know that movie's fine it just has a couple parts and everybody oversells the nuke in the fridge and like i don't have a problem with the nuke in the fridge it's just that the whole movie stinks <laughs> <laughs> it's a pile of garbage and uh you know everybody's phoning well not everybody's phoning in harrison ford is phoning it in uh I don't know what the hell they were trying to do with John Hurt's character, Ray Winstone. Like, what the hell was that character even doing? He's the guy who keeps betraying him. Oh. <laughs> uh, and yeah, it's Kate uh, Blanchett, I think, as the Russian lady. Oh, okay. Yeah, Irina Spalko. And uh, she's fucking terrible. I don't know what the hell they were doing with that. <laughs> uh, yeah, it stinks. I don't get it. Yeah, see... I never would have guessed that it was Kate Blanchett because I remember the Russian lady being terrible and Kate Blanchett generally is not. Yeah, usually uh, pretty spot on. Uh, this one just, I mean, she's rising to the level of the material. Hmm. <laughs> I guess. Uh, next, we've got White Ghost, which is uh, you know next in my Vietnam stack. Uh, you got this guy, William Cat. It's 15 years after the end of the war. He is still there fighting his one-man war in Vietnam. Yeah, that's literally the whole uh, description. 15 years later, he's still there. He's still there. So the U.S. government is like, we got to pull this guy out. Let's let's go send some people and get him out of there. But our our functionary, our our general who has uh, is getting together the extraction team doesn't really do his homework properly and he hires the guy's personal nemesis and a bunch of baddies to, to extract him so that's what you shouldn't do <laughs> i mean it's the worst possible choice so those guys go in there and they're killing people and they're starting they're like reigniting the vietnam war the shit <laughs> well i mean yeah okay it's a bad idea because of his personal nemesis too but especially if they're going to do this and yeah, I mean, the stupidest thing is how he his nemesis goes back there and he, they finally have a face off. And he the the nemesis guy, the mercenary, he's mad at him because he says it's him and soldiers like him who failed the war and that, you know, that they, you know, they're they're the ones who let it end. And I'm thinking like. He's literally the only person who never let it end. He's still currently fighting it. Even you aren't. What? <laughs> How wait, is that? Wait, wait. So hold on. It's the guy who isn't fighting the war who's mad at the guy who is fighting the, the war. Mercenary. The mercenary. Or not fighting the war. Yeah, the mercenary leader is mad at William Cat, who fights on in the jungles 15 years later. I, I, I don't know. The motivations are very bizarre. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> Honestly, like all of that shit is so anodyne. Uh, I'm I'm not really interested in a lot of what William Cat is doing or his nemesis, who I, whose character I can't even remember. But Reb Brown, you know, I talk about him a lot. I've mentioned him a bunch of times. He's in Space Mutiny. He's you know Roll Fizzle Beef. Uh, oh right, <laughs> Big McLarge huge. Yep. Uh, he's the guy who sets everything up, and it keeps going wrong. So. 
when things keep going wrong, he doesn't want to, you know, get in professional trouble for it. So he decides to fly there and resolve it himself. Oh, I see. And it's the greatest, like, Reb Brown sequence in terms of just, like, what he offers as an action hero. Because, like, he's just been sidelined the whole movie. And I was getting mad at it because I was kind of bored with a lot of the William Cat stuff. And I'm sitting there like, man, if I walk out of this movie and Reb Brown does not go, ah, while shooting a gun <laughs> at any point, I'm going to be pretty disappointed because he's spending the whole movie in an office on the other side of a phone. It's like, what is what is going on here? How are oh, you man. deploying a Reb Brown? <laughs> so finally... He, he gets in country, he starts a fist fight in a helicopter, he falls during the fist fight, like, still fighting, out oh, of a helicopter. Of you, you don't <laughs> stop just because you're yeah. falling. You yeah. guys gotta be punched still. Yeah, you know, like a, a, a whirling uh, uh, ball of fists and dust, like in a cartoon, falling out of a <laughs> helicopter, and he, like, gets up, he is holding two machine guns, and he goes, ah, and starts firing everywhere, and like, oh, it's before uh so it redeemed itself there but uh it it's it's it doesn't have a lot outside of the those bits mm, okay uh next i finished off the cardona collection with cyclone oh yeah um the cheapest of the bunch i would say the terror store was only the beginning but the sharks would be the merciless and is this a sharknado movie yeah, you know, it sounds like that, but so the terror storm is only at the beginning, is what they're saying. Oh, okay. And the sharks are only at the end. Oh, and okay. in between, there's just a whole bunch of drifting at sea. Uh, so cyclone, there's a cyclone. There's there's various groups of people who are affected by a cyclone. Sure. You got some miniatures. This is where they spent most of the budget. Uh. Uh, a plane goes down in the ocean. Most of the most of uh, the passengers are killed. Only a very few people survive that. Uh, there's a fishing boat that sinks, and there's a like glass bottom boat out on a pleasure cruise. Okay. And you know, over the next like half hour, those three groups all end up together on the glass bottom boat. You know, the survivors right. of the those groups. Sure. Sure. And then it's you know it's a survival at sea movie. Oh, uh, you know they're it's they don't have much water. They have to ration. Uh, they lose their fishing rod really quickly, and then they can't catch fish, so they don't have anything to eat. So everybody starts getting a little hungry. Uh, <laughs> someone has a dog on board. That doesn't last very long. Oh no. Uh, well, it's it's this rich lady who's on the pleasure cruise who has her Yorkshire Terrier or, or Scotty or whatever, Scotty dog, uh, and she's been very snobbish and rude and everything. And there's this weird bit where she pays someone like a thousand dollars and sort of suggests that she'll maybe have sex with them later uh, to get a portion of water to give to her dog instead of. Uh, so so this person goes thirsty a day in the blazing sun in the Caribbean, right? Uh -huh. And the, the guy who she pays it to is the son of the captain of the boat. And he freaks out and throws the dog into the ocean. Oh. And then one of the, like, grizzled old fishermen 
uh, jumps out to get the dog back and everyone's like why did you save the dog and he starts screaming it's me it's me and he like slashes the dog's throat <laughs> and it it just like the the lady just spends the next like 20 minutes of the movie crying in the background uh, oh. it's it's very grimy like it's just a mm. gruesome nasty intense disaster flick and you know the the point of disaster flicks of the era was usually that they were star studded you had a bunch of luxurious stars you had big action sequences you had you know crazy spectacle this doesn't have a lot of any of that it's mostly just people being miserable on a boat and slowly <laughs> you know edging towards cannibalism until they you know go into cannibalism <laughs> and you know by the end they're they're they have like just tons of cutlets of person drying out on top of the boat roof while <laughs> and, and like rescue ships show up and they're sinking and there's a shark attack to disco music and it's just like <laughs> the the whole concluding sequence you know the the sharks are converging and they keep coming up and they're picking people off they're, and every time they use the same footage over and over and <laughs> it's the shark grabbing someone by the butt and pulling them under <laughs> always go for the butt you know and then you always. have the, the same footage of just a, a shark with some bundle of clothing and entrails that they've given a shark to just like drag through the water that they just use the same ones over and over and over and it goes on for like 20 minutes just <laughs> disco shark attack disco just furiously playing the whole time no dialogue the people climbing into the, the the plane and you know the few people get away and there's no like postscript there's no denouement there's no these people were all right you just you <laughs> see a few people get in the plane you may not be totally aware of who managed to escape and then <laughs> the credits play and then like the disco track is just so funked out that they have a guitar solo that lasts like 30 seconds into the black past the end of the credits <laughs> I'm I'm imagining like being attacked by sharks and just being like at first I was afraid I was petrified. Well, it's all it's all instrumental. It's just this funky, just bass and the the, the really wild guitar playing keyboards. Just like, what is going on? Uh, but yeah, pretty bad mm, <laughs> overall. Okay. Like, uh. Not, not as good as treasure of the amazon nowhere as good as treasure of the amazon and nowhere as fun as bermuda triangle because i loved bermuda triangle for how like bermuda triangle was bad it was stupid it was really janky but that dub was so funny <laughs> i i watched part of it and yeah it's, it's hilarious. that dub is something else oh. freaking the chef the chef is he my favorite sounds... he's so dignified and it's clearly not the character that is being played on screen he looks like he should be going oh no boss i dropped the seafood okay? <laughs> oh i'm scared boss it feels like one of those but he's always like man i don't know about this this, <laughs> this doesn't <laughs> seem like a good idea no no well Jimmy. i don't know and uh, the uh, i would like some raw meat for my dolls <laughs> <laughs> okay little miss <laughs> weird weird all the children are voiced by adults doing bad child voices yeah which is i mean they could have got the real i i renee cardona jr or renee cardona the third is the main kid so oh well he was certainly available but maybe he didn't speak english 
maybe. I guess. Everyone felt like they graduated from the Charlie Brown School of Voice Acting. Yeah, and that's, I mean, you know, the, the Peanuts ones, it gets away with it because they're actual kids. And, and, and at this point, it's become so iconic that you can't make a Charlie Brown anything today and have them sound any different. Yeah, it would feel weird. Yeah. Uh, next, from the Michael J. Murphy set, is Death Run. Ooh, that's that set's still going. Uh, there's, I mean, there we're like halfway through, maybe. Oh my god! Even what? What did you open this box like six months ago? I don't know, a while ago. There's, there's nice. a lot in it. I mean, but, all of yeah. the stuff at the start was fragments, right? Oh yeah, for sure. So Death Run. It's. I feel like maybe some of this was in Bloodstream, or Bloodstream <laughs> had some tests for Death Run because Death Run is his post-apocalyptic movie. Cool. Cool. Uh, so you got roving biker gangs and there's these two kids, uh, you know, boyfriend and girlfriend and their, their mom was a cryogenic scientist, I guess. Okay. And she saw that they were heading towards an apocalypse. So, and, and I think the mom, no, I feel like maybe that lady isn't even in this one. I think this might be the first one without... The lady who's in all the ones we've seen. Right, the the secretary from yeah, Bloodstream. Yeah. I think she's maybe not even in this one. She okay. could have been the mom. But it, it, the mom only has like this one scene. She, I think she kills herself after letting these two out. And so, you know, they've been, the, the boyfriend and girlfriend, they've been cryogenically frozen for like 30 years underground. Right, to, um, to not suffer from the apocalypse. Right. And so uh, they they come out, and they soon find that the world has been destroyed. There's just these roving biker gangs. Uh, there's uh, this guy. I can't remember what he calls himself. The Messiah. Uh, Messiah is our main bad guy. Uh, it's very okay. Fury Road, but like mm. a backyard version of it. <laughs> you know? Right, uh, because he, he doesn't have Fury Road money. No, like nothing close to Fury Road money. He doesn't have like Mad Max money. Mad Max was a very low budget feature. Uh, it's, it, it's uh. So there, there's all these bikers. There's the Messiah and his gang of evil bikers, and everybody's fucking afraid of him. Like all of his underlings are afraid of him. It's obviously unsustainable. Right. Yeah. And his thing is the Death Run, where they chain you to like a wire that runs down a long path and then people come at you with like swords and shit because guns no longer exist the bullets have long run out oh yeah yeah like uh like in six string samurai they haven't exactly. had bullets since 1953 right exactly so it's just people in you know backyard medieval armor having fights you know <laughs> going at him and he's handcuffed to an electrified fence basically that you know is periodically it'll it'll electrify and you know there, we have a couple different death run sequences where people have to run the death run gauntlet and then a lot of it's just uh you know they get in with uh someone on on the inside because you know obviously everybody hates messiah because he's just He'll destroy anyone, even his underlings. So it's just obviously not a situation that's going to work. 
yeah that that always seems to be the problem with that is like <laughs> when you're addicted to everybody sooner or later it doesn't take them long to realize that they all have one thing in common and that's that they hate you right and he even has like just like in fury road he does have this harem of women that uh the the woman like the girl protagonist grabs uh you know is able to break out and they start a revolution against him as well so like it, it does have a lot of fury road parallels in a weird sort of way interesting uh, but you know backyard version <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh fury clothes line <laughs> like you, you don't got any vehicles for this uh, run oh oh so death run is a literal run it's yeah it's, we're not in motorbikes i just assumed motorbikes uh there are motorbikes i think but mostly yeah he's just you know he's he's handcuffed to uh, uh it's like a wire that occasionally okay. is electrified and he has to run down it and occasionally people are waiting on the end on the sides of the wire to come at him with weapons and he has to fight them <laughs> interesting yeah uh next up is prog knights uh this is a czech anthology film from the mid-60s interestingly this has a golem story Ooh, like a pretty straightforward classical golem story where a rabbi uh like dueling rabbis are creating different sized golems <laughs> to kind of uh deal with their issues internally like they're, they're, there's a power struggle between prog rabbis as soon as you said dueling rabbis i was just thinking of i don't know what like a rabbi instrument is but something like a bar mitzvah with the song going oh yeah, yeah. dueling banjos i see what you're mm -hmm. saying yeah yeah, yeah there's uh so it's uh there it's an anthology so you have three different stories and yeah. an overlapping story of people telling the story uh and then she'll like run manically to another location and then uh they'll the she's telling this to this guy who's about to leave town like he's a visitor to prague and it's pretty obvious that she's really desperate and is maybe some sort of vampire uh, and he's just not picking up on it, and just, they <laughs> they keep uh, being about to get it on, and then it's like, wait, I have to tell you this other story. <laughs> kind of, you know, like a uh, thousand and one nights, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the this the first one is the golem one. Second one, I think, is bread slippers, where. Uh, it's it's set in a time of war and famine, and there's this rich countess who decides it would be really funny to uh, go to this lavish bank or this this lavish affair as a baker woman and have slippers made out of real bread because you know people are really starving and bread is worth more than gold and you know wouldn't that be funny? <laughs> oh, I see. And obviously she gets comeuppance. Uh, of course, yeah. And uh, the third one, uh, I, I guess the third one is more just the the lady ends up telling her past to the guy she's telling the story to, although he doesn't realize it's her history until he gets to the end of until she gets to the end of the story and it affects him. But she used to be a poisoner. Mm. Yeah, uh, I mean it's it's really madcap. Uh, it's 
kind of surreally told, uh, pretty sumptuous, uh, you know, cool stuff. I, I enjoyed it. Cool. Uh, next from the Severin Danza Macabra box, Monster of the Opera. Oh. Uh, this was conceived as a sequel to Vampire and the Ballerina that I talked about a little while back. Oh, okay. Uh, but ultimately is not actually related to it. All right. Uh, but the similar plot and concept. There's a vampire who is living under the stage of an abandoned theater where years ago this theatrical troupe disappeared. I see. And Did this the vampire do it? Yeah. <laughs> sort of? Sort of, okay. Things are, I mean, there's invisible walls involved and this whole oh. weird curse. And it's Ooh. a little surreal because it's kind of a dance movie, maybe more than it's a horror movie. Because right. there's a lot of storytelling through dance, which is sort of unusual. Uh, and it's got sort of a a dance approach to sort of a surreal storytelling. Like uh, there, there's a big climactic part of the movie where everyone has to dance or they'll be, you know, they, you know, keep dancing, keep dancing. Or, you know, if you stop, he can get you and everybody's dancing and uh, the they're sort of making up new rules as the dancing is happening that they just sort of automatically know as part of the dance. Like, oh, if you go under the stage, you're lost. And, you know, everyone's sort of coming to that spot under the stage and, you know, sort of dancing near it in a way. And, you know, the the two guys in the group get down and they're acting as like goalkeepers to... <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's just all this weird dance horror sequence. Uh it's it's just a strange vibe. Everyone's extremely horny. I sent you a couple <laughs> clips of this that uh yep. <laughs> the they were roommates big time. Oh, oh wow. Yeah, I remember the these two girls very much getting it on. <laughs> just like <laughs> or hey, about to. They're not though. They're just like hanging out and they're horny in this place. Cause this again is before you could really have anything all that explicit. So they're really, really wanting to get hinting towards this stuff. You can't quite even get naked. So oh yes, everyone's just like really as close to the edge of it as possible. Uh, it's it's a weird vibe uh, yeah, because this, this theater group, they come in and they're going to stage a production in the place. But once they're in there, they're trapped, but they don't really know it. And they're doing all this dancing. And sometimes like the, the reality of things is really elastic uh it's it's an odd vibe okay well i like odd vibes true uh and i have one additional one that's not in the list and not really a traditional entry but i thought i'd just talk on it because it's another uh physical media thing i watched okay uh, and probably not one that we could cover as a main feature by any means but uh something you may be interested in probably not weird as shit mm -hmm. Well, so, have I ever told you about Jandek? You familiar with Jandek? Sounds familiar. Jandek Corwood, the rep, the representative from Corwood. Uh, he's got. Let me let me take a look at the count of albums he has right now. Um, he's got fifty-eight studio albums and sixty-five live albums. All of the live albums are new material. Oh, why? god uh 
he started making albums in 1978 his album ready for the house everything's been self-released uh on his own corewood label uh he's never done an interview well he did one by phone in the early 90s because kurt cobain was a fan so people were interested in him but he's always been anonymous no one's ever like uh, he's his picture is on most of the albums but people weren't really sure it was him for the longest time because he'd never done any public appearance at all right right he'd never spoken to anyone he'd never uh done a show he'd never done an interview he's just this mysterious guy who just made album after album after album for years and years and years okay so then uh 2005 he just starts doing shows all over the world live shows doing doing concerts i've been to one it was fucking rad cool I, i i saw him back in 2009 uh and uh, we're getting close to that show being released and i'm hyped to hear it again because it was mesmerizing and you know material that was only that one show because every show is new material right right oh my god (laughs) so yeah a lot of preamble i watched a dvd of one of his performances because a lot of his shows he's doing both like he's he's gradually releasing all these live shows and he's sort of amped it up over the last couple of years. He's put out quite a few of them uh, more recently. Like since 2020, he's been kind of pumping them out, which is great. Getting closer cool. to the one I saw coming out, hopefully. All right. All right. So one of the sets I've been going through, he released this big box set. It's a six disc set of his tour of Northern Ireland in July 2009. It was a oh. four day tour. Nice, nice. And one of the discs is a, it's it's slightly truncated. Uh, it's like a camcorder recording of one of the nights, a Sunday night in Larn. Huh. So he's in Ireland. It's this tiny out of the way bar. Uh, it is him. It, you know, it's on a camcorder. It's really lo-fi, uh, very chunky, blocky, hard to see stuff. And the camera is at the opposite end of the stage from him and it's clearly just a really small place so they couldn't set up in a place closer and uh people are like frequently walking in between or people have to like (laughs) get around him to get out the door because he's near the open door and you like you see the sunset over the course of the performance oh interesting okay it's all one song oh (laughs) okay it's about 70 minutes long uh, it's truncated. It's missing like the last 10 minutes because uh, I guess they maybe ran out of battery or something. It uh. just stops suddenly. Uh, but, you know, it's it's a it's like it's hard to explain a Jandek song if you've never heard Jandek. He, he is an untrained musician, you know. OK, sure. Uh, he he plays a few different instruments. You know, he plays guitar, he plays bass, he plays drums, but he's completely self-taught and he's what you would call an outsider artist. So there's not really any sense of melody. He's not playing in any sort of uh, recognizable technique. So it's very noisy and very strange. Uh So it's blues based, you know, kind of blues tuning, but discordant, very weird. And he'll sort of play off the musicians he gets, but also sort of play off where his head is at in any different place i guess and i i I, you know obviously he's a really private guy and i think maybe he was sour about someone trying to get a picture with him on this trip or something 
because the Larn Sunday performance, like I said, you got about the the song is about eighty minutes. You got about seventy minutes of it on the show, uh-huh. and he is actively really far away from the camera most of the time. He's like the furthest you can be. He's in the darkness near the light sources, so it's pretty hard to see him pretty much the whole time. Okay. And, playing just this really discordant squall of guitar, very angry, strange music and uh, excellent interplay with the other people and it, very dirgy at times and very few lyrics. There's, in fact, uh, one thing that he keeps saying, he'll occasionally walk back up to the microphone and go, get in the photo, <laughs> get in the photo, get in the photo. And every time he like gets up to the microphone, there's like flash photography going on and he just looks miserable. <laughs> it's, oh. it's, like, it's fascinating. It's such a, an intense and strange performance. And uh, the, the sort of thing that, I don't know, it's, it's what I come to Jandek for, the rap. Uh, it's, it's just a really fascinating thing. That does sound interesting. Uh, doesn't sound like something we could, Cover no. for an episode no but, but you know something you you may be interested in watching I might, so, you know. uh, something i'd like to check it out you can talk maybe about i could it offer my two cents yeah. yeah uh just as a supplement because you know it's only 70 yeah. minutes and sure it's a vibe it's a real vibe <laughs> well i always like listening to trying out new types of music that i don't know yeah and this one is outside of anything you've heard jandek is <laughs> totally uh his own thing all right that sounds interesting so those are our 13 ish picks for this week what do you figure for our second feature next week well i was thinking that after golem gave me a sense of existential dread and questioning whether or not i really exist or if i (laughs) myself am a golem uh, i'm thinking i'm in the mood for something a bit lighter yeah so uh, we do have a bit of that here and I don't normally do this, but I think I think it's justified here. I don't normally cover a film that we've already watched together before the recording. Hmm. So, but this time we haven't done Buster Keaton. Right. So, do you want to do Sherlock Jr. and another one? Oh yeah, that's right. It's, it's like pretty 40 short. minutes, isn't it? Yes, yeah. I do. I want to do another one to go with Sherlock Jr. and I want you to surprise me what you think well, it is, is a good one. It's it's on the same disc with oh, The Navigator. Well. They oh, well, shares a disc with The Navigator, which is another fairly essential one. Well, let's do that then. I think it was his biggest hit. Like, okay. When, during his lifetime, that was the one that was the most successful, The Navigator. All right. Yeah, let's do those two then. Okay, cool. Uh, and do you want to check out Jandak as well? Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. I definitely do. All right. So we have a handful of additions to the stacks. I totally forgot in the first part to mention, of course, the uh, uh, Picasso Trigger is replaced by the next one, the Sedaris Malibu Bay series, Savage Beach. (laughs) I love the poster. It's just a picture of the two girls we're really here to see. Donna and And, Terry. Yep. And a silhouette of maybe a samurai or more likely just a guy with a samurai sword. You're going to have some kind of ninja. You could have a ninja. Maybe more you of could a, be ninja. a ninja. The, the series can have ninjas. It, it's, it oh, wouldn't yeah. be weird. There, there are ninjas. 
Uh, I mean, we're, we're definitely heading into ninja territory with subsequent films, for sure. I'm kind of shocked we haven't already seen them. I mean, we've had ninjas. We've had mall ninjas, basically. Oh, yeah, that's true. Uh, so this one, they, uh, they, they crash their plane on a remote island. It, it, it's sort of a treasure of the Amazon kind of thing where they're trying to find some lost gold and there's several different competing parties trying to get to it. Okay. Uh, like this, there's a, a group of Navy commandos who have abducted them while they're trying to find that. And then there's a group of terrorists also on the Island and they're sort of caught in between them. Hmm. Yeah. I, I don't remember much about this one. I have <laughs> seen it, but it, it doesn't, uh, it sparks zero memories, quite honestly. All right. <laughs> uh, next edition is Freedom, which is the next one in the TV movies box. Uh, okay. It is a movie about a young girl who runs away from home to join the circus. Oh, all right. <laughs> Freedom. <laughs> Yay. Um, I didn't know that. <laughs> I thought that was just like a... <laughs> I didn't think I'd encounter this trope in the wild. Yeah, it's a well, it's a TV movie, so I, I guess so. I don't know. Maybe this, maybe it was really successful at the time, and it's why it's a trope that we know. Because this is from '81. I mean, I'm sure it was a thing that existed prior to this, but maybe it sort of repopularized the trope. Because I remember this being a thing that you know, it's a joke that people make: run away to join the circus. But yeah, circuses I, I seen... were almost passed by the time. Yeah. yeah like i've never seen an actual story that does this without making fun of the concept yeah uh so yeah that's that's what it is so she she runs away and she joins the circus okay uh, next the exotic ones which is the next one the ormond set this i guess is one of their more famous ones it's uh what the book is named after the, oh, the they're trying to one. catch they're trying to catch the swamp thing they catch the swamp thing Ooh. a swamp thing and uh they put it up in a in a strip joint <laughs> and then a good place just, for it just chaos ensues uh, when the monster's favorite stripper gets into a fight with another stripper he breaks loose and starts killing yeah so it's just like a, a bunch of nonsense in uh in a strip club just like a, a swamp monster and uh, probably a lot of people doing strip club performances, much like incredibly strange creatures, I suspect. Oh, I'm sure of it. But I think this one's like kind of hard on gore as mm. well. Maybe. I know the guy who plays the creature is Sleepy Labeef. Okay. That's that's the actor's name. Sleepy Labeef. A... <laughs> uh, oh, Good God. What's, what's the name of the actor from Killing Spree? Asbestos felt. Asbestos felt. That's what it is. Yeah. Some people got great names. Yes. <laughs> so next in the Stray Cat Rock series, we've got Sex Hunter. This one, I my recollection is it is back to being a girl gang movie again. Uh, Mako uh, is for the poster. Yeah, Mako is now Mako. Uh, and okay. They have a rival gang called the Eagles, who are racist, and I think they're guys. And it's a racist thing. They they want mm. to exterminate half breeds, but one of the girls oh. is dating a half breed. Oh no! 
So obviously that's not going to work out. Oh yeah, that's right. I saw the trailer about that one. It's like a half breed just stole my girl. Yeah. Half breeds will steal all the women. <laughs> yeah. Um, exactly. She gets the murder hat. Of course. That's where it starts. Or at least a hat. Maybe she'll use it for murder. I mean, I really hope so after these first two. She well, she's holding a whip. It's promising. Promising. It's I think she does. Like I think she has much more of a presence in this one. Like I believe she's kind of more the main character finally in this one. Oh good. good Which good. I think is kind of why she's not in much of the one we just watched, because they were filmed simultaneously and she was mostly doing the other one, I think. Now that I know that, that makes sense because she was she's barely she just she just showed up. Yeah. Uh, next in my Vietnam stack, we've got Cutter's Way. Uh, Jeff Bridges and uh, oh, who's the other dude in this? Uh, John Hurd as uh, John Hurd, I think, is Cutter, and Jeff Bridges is Bone. I think it was originally going to be titled Cutter and Bone. Cool name. <laughs> Uh, and it's it's them investigating a case as sort of amateur sleuths. And Cutter is a Vietnam vet, and he's really kind of wrecked by the war, and he's very disillusioned. So they don't want to go to the police. When one of them happens to see someone dumping a body, they decide, oh, let's investigate this ourselves. Sort of like That's a... always a good idea. Yeah, sort of a more serious proto-Big Lebowski. You know, investigative oh. sleuthing, L.A. neo-noir uh shaggy druggy burnt out <laughs> jeff bridges but you know 80s cool. it's more serious it's not a comedy uh as i recall it's pretty dark but mm. yeah been a while since i've seen this one too all right next from michael j murphy we have avalon uh it's another sword and sorcery one okay a thing he likes to do uh it's it's more of a larp movie you know like that uh tristan one right uh it's morgana uh the evil you know witch morgana yeah uh, they, they gotta get his girlfriend back from morgana you know it's a quest knight's yeah. ah. quest kind of thing okay <laughs> and last up is the seventh grave which is the other one for or the next one from the uh danza macabre set uh just sounds like spook house the movie uh just uh, there's a bunch of ghosts and ghouls and goblins oh my god oh no <laughs> scary old house full of full of stuff you know some people have to go to a house and stay in a location and it's haunted oh <laughs> <laughs> so this one i i've never heard anyone say it's anything even remotely good it, it's just <laughs> it, it was a lost film for a really long time and they happened to luck out and find uh just a, a really high quality print or maybe the original negative or something so it's a really nice restoration of a movie that i think the consensus is is total fucking crap <laughs> so, whatever i all I, right i i can enjoy some gothic garbage oh sure <laughs> uh just liminal gothic trash so those are the only additions what do you figure for our main feature next week? Well, this time around, I'm thinking uh, Gothic Garbage is fun, but I want to go back into the Westerns a little bit and check out the next one after the tall T, uh, Decision at Sundown. 
Next in the Bud Baddeker Westerns from Indicator. Uh, also coming out soon from Criterion, an identical set or like the, oh. the same group of movies getting another release uh, in North America from Criterion because this is a UK release. Oh, okay. Okay. Interesting. So uh, yeah, Randolph Scott back again as Bart Allison. Uh, Sundown is the name of the town he's coming back to. He's been searching for uh, Tate Kimbrough who he who killed his or he blames for the death of his wife and he's going to kill but it's the day of kimbrough's wedding and there's a shootout in the church <laughs> oh <laughs> so that I, I i think that's how things start i have seen this before but it's been a really long time like maybe a decade all right well the last one was really good mm-hmm. so like with Bedeker, it's going to be pretty minimalist it's very brooding uh, you're going to have uh, just, you know, Western archetypes, but Randolph Scott, again, sort of examining uh, the the Western man, uh, much as he did in the last one. It's a very grim movie for a 50s movie, uh, The Tall mm. T. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I still love the trailer that, like, it was called The Tall T because he's tall, and I don't know what the T is. Yeah. <laughs> T is oh yeah no the T is for terror that's what it was because he's a terror to the outlaws even though he is anything but in this movie yeah uh but the, I think this one's a little bit more traditional since it's going to be duels in a town decision at sundown uh yeah yeah should be good so decision at sundown along with uh Sherlock Jr and the Navigator. It'll be a fun one, I think. That should be a good time. Dig into some silent cinema again and uh, some more westerns. Mm-hmm. Cool. Two that we've done a little of, but not nearly enough, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, they're both vast. I and mean, silent cinema was the dominant mode for you know, a solid 30 years. Dominant or only well, yeah, dominant there there was some sound starting around oh, that's true. 26 i guess but you know they start making films circa 1895 but those are not quite films uh, yeah you know it's 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 just, it's like 1910 or so before you're making movies with a narrative really there's mm. here it's you know a couple minute shorts before that it's a right, novelty right. narrative cinema is a fad <laughs> <laughs> It'll never catch on. It uh, just doesn't seem like it. So do you have any last thoughts before we uh, close for this week? Yeah, boy. Yeah, yeah, boy. Angu. Uh, yeah, I, I have actually been listening to that quite a bit because I found it on YouTube and you could just listen to the whole track. It kind of bangs. It's good. It's, it's a good, good track. track. <laughs> boy and girl by uh akika wada <laughs> uh some good 60s uh beats or group sounds i think is what, what this stuff's called the specific japanese rock subgenre. i don't know <laughs> i'll take your word for it because i don't have a clue fair enough all right well uh thanks everyone so much for listening and uh see you next week